Welcome to Who Are You? The Life Lessons of Sports with your host, Rob Elwood. Join us as we open the door and take an unforgettable journey to unlock the full power of sports on and off the field. Listen to personal stories and reflections from incredible leaders who are sure to move and inspire you. So listen and enjoy another episode of Who Are You? The Life Lessons of Sports. Now I know that's a that's a tough thing to hear, but it's true and it happens every day. We lose 22, on average, we lose 22 veterans a day to suicide. And that's, that statistic is according to the Wounded Warrior Project. 22 veterans a day, Rob, to suicide. That's just amazing, but it's not, because I was there. I sat on the end of the bed, and the gun was right beside me. And I had already put the bullet in the chamber, and it, safety was off, and I had made the decision. And God intervened. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw, because my and where I'm sitting on the bed, my wife's office is perpendicular to the left. I looked up and I saw this blue binder. And for some reason, it caught my eye. So instead of picking up that gun, I got up and I picked up that blue binder. And in that blue binder was all the race numbers in document protectors, because my wife's an admin troop in the Air Force. She had in document protectors all of our race numbers from all the 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons and triathlons that she and I had ever done together. All the way back from Osan, Korea to all the way through the, the somehow it had survived Katrina. I think she had it in the attic. So, um, and postcards from Europe and train tickets when we had to take a train in London and all these things. And I started going through there and I started to cry. And this thought occurred to me. It said, you know, maybe I can't think like that chief anymore. Maybe I can't be that, have that humongous brain. Maybe I can't be on that level anymore. But if I could just stand on that line on Saturday morning, if I could just be that athlete again, if I could just feel that feeling of belonging to that group after the run and just stand around and have that sense of of belonging again, if I could just be an athlete again. Maybe that's enough. Maybe that's worth not killing yourself for. Okay, Who Are You Nation? I am extremely honored to introduce our special guest today, Damien Orslean. Damien, how are you today? I'm doing great, Rob. How are you? Doing really well, thanks. Damien, where are you right now? I got you on video here, and as we talked about it before, not really sure if it's actually video recording, but... uh, I know you're you're sitting in a nice place and, and traveling on the road. So let us know where you are. Well, I'm a, I'm on the road. Uh, we drove up from Pensacola to visit my family uh, in uh, Warren, Ohio, and now we're in uh, outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, on our way to uh, Washington D.C. to visit a very good friend of ours who's in the hospital over there. Oh, okay, great, great. And I uh, born and raised in D.C. Am I? So that's uh, always a it's a little. Are you ready for that heat though? I'm just... Oh, hey, you know. Uh, <laughs> It's a little bit different kind of heat that we're used to in Pensacola. So it's a, it's a, we're enjoying the coolness at the moment. It was 50 degrees when we woke up in Harrisburg this morning. So uh, it's been a, unusually cool. But so we're going to have to uh, 
get the shorts back out again as we head towards DC. Yes. <laughs> Drink a lot of water. A lot of a lot of humidity going on, but not a surprise, I'm sure. None. I, I bet uh, you'll just be fine. Ready for it. Well, I uh, I wish you well on your travels there, and I'm really thankful you're coming on the show here today. Who are you? Life lessons of sports. I know you and I have gone back and forth, but I got gotcha, you, and you got me. So looking forward to some great time together. Well. On our show, we always like to start off with a motivational or inspirational quote or even just a self-mantra, something you could share with us that is applicable to you and your journey in life so far. Do you have one that you could share with us? Yeah, you know, I, I, there's two that we've always kind of run our, my life by. That The one that I always had underneath my signature block my whole time in the military was uh, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. And that is very apropos for uh, for my life, all the challenges that uh, I've had throughout my entire career and throughout my entire life, uh, I always believed that there was always a reason for everything, and that uh, you know it wasn't how you got knocked knocked down that mattered; it was how you got back up that mattered. And so that which didn't uh, kill you, you know, it happened for a reason. So it just it was it happened to make you a better person. So get back up and let's get back out there. And and the. I always uh, had a 10 o'clock meeting uh, for all my tours in Iraq, and at 10 o'clock, we got, I got my team together every night, and uh, my own personal quote uh, that my, uh, my guys would, would tell you, if you ever asked my, anybody who ever deployed with me or anybody that ever worked with me as my uh, time as a chief master sergeant in the United States Air Force, they said, hey, what's Chief O's quote? They would say, uh, hey, airplane didn't fall out of the sky, nobody died, it was a good day. You know, and that's how we, that's how we kind of, my bride and I, we kind of rule our lives is keep it in perspective. You know, just keep life in perspective. Airplanes didn't fall out of the sky. Nobody died. It was a good day because we had days um, when airplanes fell out of the sky and people died. So, you know, we know what a bad day is. You know, we know what, what, a, what, what it is to have tragedy in our lives. So keep life in perspective. You know, enjoy your life. Enjoy those good moments. Enjoy a good, special amazing sunrise and all those things that happen in between because bad things are going to happen and deal with it when they do and move on because you know don't uh, don't let the little things get you down because big, big things are going to knock you down get back up and move on yeah you know, i didn't fall out of the sky and nobody died it was a good day i think those are great great quotes and and really staying present as well as you're mentioning being in the moment so important damien i had the fantastic wonderful opportunity to interview pat williams who's the founder of the orlando magic and he put it this way and you're reminding me of this a little bit which is you know enjoy those moments because you're either going into a storm you're in the middle of a storm or you're just coming out of a storm and that's life and so he summarized you know here he was that's exactly right right that's, that's very good that's exactly right yeah. you know yeah you're you're paddling one way or the other that's right yeah exactly, exactly so right. it's yeah, uh, like that. no no comparison there but i just it just sparked that and it, it really reminded me of what of what he had said so well, do us a favor because we're going to get into a lot of what you just referenced in a second but i love to start the journey way back when, when you were a toddler heading into those years or sports as a part of your life and you're 12 years old, you know, right before those teenage years and life was, uh, you just, you know, when you see a ball, you kind of threw it, you didn't think about what was going to happen next, right? That kind of time. But if you could bring us back to what, what your family was like, what sports was like, and of course school at that time, the three biggest things at that time of your life. You know, it's funny because I, I look at kids these days and we see that you know, play for 60 minutes program. And I just don't understand 
you know, that, that just doesn't resonate with me because we were the exact opposite. We were the kind of kids that when our eyes opened in the morning, you know, mom had to stop us at the door to make sure that we ate breakfast and brushed our teeth and did those kind of things because we already had it. We woke up with a ball glove in our hand if it was summertime or a football under our shirt in the wintertime because we were heading out the door and we didn't probably didn't even come home for lunch. And um, we pl- we played, you know, uh, I grew up in an inner city kid. My father spent 44 years in a steel mill outside of Youngstown, Ohio, called Warren, Ohio. And, uh, you know, it was the typical, we uh, all pitched our money in and got went to Stanball Thompson's and bought one baseball because that was the, you know, the neighborhood baseball. And it, uh, uh, somebody would draw chalk in the middle of the street for the bases and that, you know, every now and then somebody would get a, a window broken because somebody would hit a good one. Yeah. And we just, baseball, in the, you know, ruled our lives in the summertime. And then in the fall, uh, I grew up, every Christmas, I got a uh, Pittsburgh Steeler uh, uniform with helmet and shoulder pads. And my neighbors would call my mom and dad and say, hey, could you please come get your son? He's down here tackling our trees. You know, he's he's ruining our yard because he's down here running around with his little cleats on and he won't come in, you know. So I wanted to be Mike Webster of the Pittsburgh Steelers. That was all all I wanted to be. I was I weighed 185 pounds going into high school. Um, we skipped ninth grade football because I didn't grow. Went into high, went into my sophomore year, weighed you know 180. I wanted to be a center. They said you're too small. I said I don't care. That's what I'm going to do. Um, my coach said you never you never play for me as a lineman. I said you need to do something else. I said nope. I'm going to be the center. And uh, he sat me down my senior year going into my senior year and he said, listen, you're never going to play for me. You're too small. You weigh 185 pounds. You're never going to be a center. You need to pick a different position. And I said, listen, coach, I was meant to be a center. This is what I want to do. And he said, I'm sorry, you're never going to going to play. Well, that's that fall, that winter, he was fired. And we went into uh, a new brand new coach showed up for spring and he said, I don't know anybody. So we're just going to do it the way we normally do it. And seniors on the line. And I went out there and I stood on the line as a senior and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm your, I'm your center. He goes, you're not my center. You weigh 185 pounds. You can't be a center. And I said, I'm your center. And uh, standing behind me was Donnie Boyd. He weighed 290 pounds, a junior. And he started laughing and he said, that guy looks like a center. You look like a tight end. I said, nope, I'm your center. And he said, we're going to sell this like we always sell it. Bull in the ring, you know, and bull in the ring right now. Let's do bull in the ring. And uh, for those who are listening that don't understand what bull in the ring is, you put uh, you surround the two guys who are fighting for a position, and they line up head to head, and they put a guy with a football behind one, and they have to to uh, block and tackle each other, and the guy runs past, and if he gets past, you lose your job. And uh, I blocked Donnie Boyd three times in a row, and I got past Donnie Boyd three times in a row, and tackled Charles Griffin three times in a row. And when I got done, I said, I'm your center. And uh, I went on to be All-State uh, Center in Ohio that year and got a uh, four-year football scholarship to Till University, which I uh, ended up turning down because they scared the hell out of me, those big guys and the cheerleaders and everything else. And I just didn't think that was my calling, and I decided to go to the Air Force instead. Interesting. And that's where I ended up, United States Air Force. But, you know, we were, we were your typical – Sandlot kids. We 
we woke up with a ball in our hands, went to sleep with a ball in our hands. We had baseball cards and and uh, we knew every statistic and Roberto Clemente were our heroes and we were pirates and, and penguins and, and Steeler fans. And that's all that because our parents worked and our mom and dad, you know, our dads all worked in the steel mill. So there weren't any other team but Steelers. So that's just the way it was. Wow. That is really fun to hear, actually. <laughs> I can hear the enthusiasm and some of those memories coming back, and I'm sure there's endless, endless. I mean, mentioning the names of the, of the running back and who you're going against. I'll tell you, this is Ohio at its best because where I'm from in D.C. with a graduating class of 60, if you're 180 pounds, like you, you were the center. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. You're you're the center. You got it, my friend. Everybody else is like 160, like myself, running around like uh, like a skinny guy. So things change when you start to head out a little bit west there, northwest. So yeah, that's... That, yeah. They take their football seriously, you know, uh, in Ohio. I t- well, you know, you, you talk to a Texas guy and he laughs at me. Right. You know, they take it really serious down south, but you know, having been stationed down south a couple times, but yeah, Ohio football, it was a serious thing. Wow. So where, where did this whole, I, I mean, I heard Mike Webster, where did this, I want to be a center come from where did, and, and then the confidence to, I mean, I, I guess if you took down a couple trees, that might give you some confidence, but where did that confidence and that determination come from? You know, it, there was just, uh, when I first started playing football, um, I didn't, uh, enjoy being on the uh, the defensive side, watching football, I always enjoyed the strategy part of it, the offend, the the uh, the the attack piece of it, not the reactionary piece of it. I liked knowing where I was going and what the play was and what we were going to do, and I just liked scoring versus being scored against. You know, some guys just liked being hitting people and being on the defensive part. I I liked going out and having the plan and and, and going after linebackers, and I really enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. So, you know, uh, there was you, you know when you're when you're a football player, there you you fall, usually fall into one camp or the other. You usually like being a reactive guy and going in there and tackling somebody, or you fall into the the liking to know the play and, and going out there and, and uh, making the making the play for someone else to score. And I was in that camp. I like to be in the support guy, which is funny because I spent the next 28 years in the Air Force being a support guy, exactly. you know, being a personnelist and a force support guy. And, and that's, you know, that's just the way I always grew up being. Yeah, and I was just about to make that analogy, and you you beat me to it. I mean, as your chief master sergeant, and you are the center. I mean, the center and the quarterback run the show, right? And and uh, center more often than not runs that grit in the middle. So it's, it is fascinating to see how it all uh, unfolded. It is, you know. And when you're a kid, you're not thinking that way. But you know, it, it's funny how God's plan is. It, it just works out that way. It's, it's just it, it has a lot of. Now that I just turned fifty over the weekend, and and. Uh, uh, you sit back now and you look at it all, how the, all the little fingers, how it all ties together and, and the people that touched your lives. If Dave Scoverin hadn't come into my life, co- the coach was Dave Scoverin who let me be a center. I was the only pulling center in the entire country. We used to run a Michigan trap and uh, I would snap the ball and I would pull instead of the right guard. And, um, you know, I was, he had the confidence and the, uh, and the belief that I could do things like that. And we had an amazing um, offense, the first winning season that had the Highland Tigers had had in a long time, and we just had a great year, and we had a lot of fun. And and uh, you know, if, if he hadn't, if he hadn't 
come into our year and done those things and given me that opportunity, then who knows what, you know, would have happened. I, rid- I would have ridden the bench again as a senior, you know, and, and so great things happened from there. That boosted my life amazing. That just taught me that if you just believe in yourself and you just stick to your guns, that you know you're capable of doing it, then you can do anything. And, and that, I just took that on and, and went into the Air Force with that. And then great things continued to happen for me. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I found through all these interviews and meeting new people, wonderful people like yourself, Damien, that we meet so many people in our lives. And as we get older, they kind of come and go. And of course, we have some ones that stick with us. But you can always remember, you always remember maybe your grade school teacher, or your athletic coach. And here are these stories now about coach Dave and, and, and I, you know, it's just, it's, it's like coming right out of you. What, what, um, what did looking back, you're 50, by the way, congratulations. That's uh, Thank you. that's a big five Oh, and you know, if, I'm sure the joke 50, you know, going on 20, whatever it is these days, but, uh, you look great by the way. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's a, new, it's a new 30. I heard it's definitely the new 30. I'm going with that. I just turned 40. So it sounds good to me. Um, and, and as you look back, you know, and really think about Dave. Uh, first of all, are you still friendly with him around? Is he, is he still with us? I mean, I know things change in life. No, it's no. very unfortunate. Really? He, he passed away from cancer not uh, not too many years later. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, what did you learn from Dave? What did you pull away? You know, um, it was amazing that he had uh, the belief you know, he, he was willing to give me that chance, you know, right then and there. He said, he said, okay, you know, that day uh, he had a belief system that he said, seniors get online. And, and when I said, I'm your guy, he said he knew what it would take to get the job done. And he said, bull in the ring. You know, this is what, it, to me, this is what it was going to take to get the job done was bull in the ring. Because he and I had that conversation, you know, and I said, you know, later I said, hey, thank you so much, you know, for the opportunity. And he said, don't thank me. You did it. This, you know, if you had not done in the thing in the bowl in the ring, you were sitting down, you know. So this was, you know, this was I knew what I needed in a center and you got the job done. You won the job, you know. So, you know, he gave me that chance. And then he, he was willing to have a standard. I met the standard and he was a hard taskmaster. He never gave up, you know, he never let up on me. He, he rode me hard. And... Um, but, but every time he did, he did it with love. You know, he was, he was always on my back, but at the same time, he was reminding me that I was the nucleus in the center of that line. And if the nucleus breaks down, then the line breaks down. And so he did it with a, he did it with love. And I took that then into the air force and I made that my leadership style because I'm not a yeller, you know, and I, and I am a very good, you know, I learned to be a very good supervisor in the air force. And I would call my team together and I would explain to them, if we have this breakdown, then the mission doesn't get done. And then this is how we fail. And, you know, that can't happen. So let's go out there and get it done. And years later, people would come back to me and say, you know, you know, you changed how I thought or you changed my life or you changed, you did good positive things for me because before people would yell at us and, and we don't react well to that, but you would sit us down and say, this is why we have to do this. And if we don't, we're going to fail. And we just, and failure is unacceptable. And I learned that from coach Scovern. You know, I learned that from Dave Scovern as, as a 18 year old senior in high school. And you don't, you know, you don't really think about it until years later, 
how the impact of a guy and, and what really was sad to me was when it really dawned on me who had taught me that when it really dawned on me the impact he was having on my life he had already passed I went home to I, you know I went home to 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 say thank you and my mom said oh you're, you're not gonna believe this but coach Scovern you know just passed away and it really broke my heart I didn't have the opportunity I went and saw his, his wife of course you know that kind of stuff but it really broke my heart to not to be able to go to him personally and say thank you you know and, and so so you, you have to, it just reminds us that we have to take the time to say thank you to the people that have an impact on our lives when we have the opportunity to do that because you never know how long they're going to be with us. So we have to tell the people we care about um, that we love them, that we care about them, and thank you for the things you do in our lives when we have the opportunity to do that because life is so short. Yeah. No, it's a really in-depth answer with a lot of life lessons that came out of that and uh, really setting the stage here because that foundation that – and it, you know, it stinks because you, you don't always recognize it, especially at that age. There's so many things on your mind and, <laughs> you know, everything's next, next, next at times. But uh, you're, you're speaking hopefully to a lot of parents and coaches and even athletes right now that uh, people of influence, that I like to say, that can take this message and apply it uh, and also recognize the influence that they do have. When I say people of influence, the influence they do have. You said something which is very important. You know, he took the time, then you also did so, which is explain why. Give the why behind what we're doing, right? And a couple people have come out with books and all that good stuff, and it's nice to hear, but you got to do it. Yelling and screaming the commands without knowing where we're going, especially in sports, and I'm guessing in the military and life. Yeah, okay, we'll follow the leader, but what are we doing? And then it can create a lot of dissent later on, I'm guessing. Um, and I know that from sports myself. So uh, that's a, I really appreciate your reflection on Coach there, and I'll bet his wife was, you know, sad, but very, very happy to hear stories like yourself that you shared. So, well, moving on from, from high school and I do find it, I, I am curious actually, because this is a pivotal moment in your life. Why, you know, you mentioned cheerleaders, you mentioned big guys, but that didn't seem to bother you in high school. Why turn down the scholarship? Um, I wanted to be a, a lineman. Uh, the coach to a university um, had a change in coaching. They uh, the new coach came in really late. They had some scholarships left. He came and and offered us a, a scholarship. I was a um, you know I wasn't the I wasn't even the best guy at my high school you know so I I was a good football player but I wasn't an amazing football player. They took me to two university for the day. Um, he sat down with me and he said, listen, you're never going to be a lineman. I said, well, I want to be Mike Webster. And he <laughs> said, you're never going to be a lineman. He said, you're 5'11", you weigh 185 pounds. He said, come here, I want to show you something. He took me into the weight room and he introduced me to his right tackle who weighed about 340 pounds. He said, he introduced me to his right guard who weighed like, you know, 280 he said, listen, you have to hold down the center of this line. You don't have the frame for me to pack on more than another 40, 50 pounds. You know, he said, I need you to weigh, you know, 260, 270 pounds to hold down the middle of this line. You can't do it. But I've watched your film. You have great hands. You're going to make a great defensive end. You're going to make, you know, you might even make a good tight end. He said, but you're never going to be a lineman. And, and so, uh, I went home with that and I thought, you know, 
I wasn't madly in love with the idea of starting school. I wanted to be a lineman. Uh, it just, you know, I, I prayed about it. I sat at home. I went and talked to my priest. I talked to my mom and dad. And my mom and dad were really struggling to get my older brother through school. And here was a free ride for me to go to school. So they were like, what are you, an idiot? Of course you have to go to college. Right. And um, it just, Rob, I got to tell you, it just didn't feel right. You know, it just didn't feel like that's what I was supposed to do. And, and um, they put me back on the bus and sent me home. And I walked in the house, and mom and dad said, so what did you think? And I said, I'm going to the Air Force. This just isn't what I'm meant to do next. And the hardest part was I really wanted to play football, but if it, I didn't really want to play tight end. I really didn't want to play, you know, I if I couldn't be an offensive lineman, then I didn't want just to play football. I wanted to be a lineman. And if I couldn't be a lineman, then I don't want to play football. And that's what it was for me. I just, you know, I didn't love football that, the my love for football wasn't so I could keep playing football. My love for football was I wanted to be an offensive lineman. And if I couldn't do that, then and I can't explain it any other way. Yeah. And that was just the way it was. And if I couldn't do that, then then God was telling me, or there was this voice inside me that said, you know, this is your fork in the road, and I've got other plans for you, and you need to go left instead of right. And all my mom and dad did not get that. There, there was, there, there was, there were some discussions that night. Okay. But you know, the next day we went down to the Air Force recruiter, and dad was okay with it. You know, because he, because he was a steel mill guy. It was 18. You were going somewhere. <laughs> exactly. You were going somewhere. So he was okay with me joining the military because I was going somewhere. I wasn't staying home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I can tell that. that but, but amazingly, uh, and and it runs through the family. I could tell by your personality. Uh, you know, he, he too was in the moment after probably a little reactionary uh, uh, minutes and hours and discussions uh, behind behind closed doors, and but he, he came around the next day. Sure, yeah, and there absolutely. You go. And they're proud of what I've accomplished and where we've gone and and uh, the things we've done. We've been to 33 countries and, and uh, have seen amazing, amazing things and have done great things for our country and uh, 28 years of of serving our country and, you know, can't shake a stick at that. There's nothing to be, you know, ashamed of. So we've, we've done great things and he's, we just, I just got done spending a whole week with him and he's my hero. I love him to death. He's, I'm so proud of, of my dad's, my, my John Wayne, you know, he's been 44 years in a steel mill and hated every day of it and, and never complained once. And, and, uh, he's just, he has a little tiny patch of a garden, a little tiny yard and, and, you know, in a, uh, steel mill town in in Warren, Ohio and he just it's fanatical about keeping his grass cut and that kind of stuff now, you know, he's he's now no longer this big tall mammoth the guy is all bent over and, and uh, I just love he's he'll be eighty this year and, and next year I guess and I just love him to death. And mom still tries to cook and clean and do all the right things and, you know, Slovak mother, Hungarian, Croatian father and just, you know, just couldn't ask for you know, very strict, very, very tight upbringing, Catholic, you know, tight upbringing, but I couldn't ask for a better childhood. It was just, there was always, 
there was always plenty to eat. There wasn't a whole lot of meat, but there was always a lot of bread and potatoes and fresh baked goods. And we didn't know we were hungry or poor or any of that other stuff. We thought we had the greatest childhood in the world. Right. And we still, and I still do. Yep. I still do. That's great. As long as you yeah. had that ball to sleep with, right? At night. That's you could, right. You as were long, good. You take that ball away. I was the one that always took the ball home. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly, That's right? That's how we define exactly right. our, our wealth back then. My ball. That's right. <laughs> and it's funny before when you mentioned how you, you, you bought a baseball together because I, I too remember those days of like that one baseball was like $6. And I'm going, $6, man. But uh, it's it's just – it's that's like the biggest trophy you could have, you know. Yeah. And it, you know, and it's funny. You would hit it into the neighbor's yard, and there'd be a dog in there. And we'd all get our baseball bats, and we'd climb the fence, and we'd all go into there to beat that dog to death. He was chewing into our our baseball. And my mom would be like, "That dog could have bitten you." I'm like, "Mom, you don't understand. There's some more things more important in life than death. That's a, that was our baseball. It's the only baseball we have, and none of us have any more paper route money. So we were going in to get that baseball." And she was like. If you would come home bitten, I would have spanked you. Like, hey, that's okay. Yeah, like the baseball. It's like a ball, right? Yeah, no, that's great. Well, such. I now think that was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we can't play that game. There, there. We could talk forever about what we did back then, but when you're nine years old, it's important. Very, very important, and. So really nice reflection on your parents there and what a difference it could have made. I mean, first of all, you're going to the United States Air Force Academy. Uh, that's fantastic. You used – what's interesting is, is I'm picking up on here is uh, you, had, you had a drive and an intuition in high school to be that center. It also was the same intuition that said, okay, well, this may not be what I want to do. It's not a lack of uh, uh, integrity or lack of macho-ness, any of that stuff. It's you using your mind and your intuition, which I'm sure played a huge role in your life for the next 25 years as you're among people that are looking to you and you to them to you know, stay alive in combat. Uh, and again, I'm making some presumptions here, but that intuition is in the game of life, right? Quote, unquote, so important. And you listen to it at that point. Uh, and, and it was, I'm, I'm not going to sit here whether it was right or wrong, but it, it, it sounds only anything but correct what you did. You know, and, and I've always had that, uh, I've always had that voice. I wish I would have paid attention to it all the time, but I didn't. But I've always had that inner voice that uh, that intuition that said, you know, I need to join the United States Air Force. I went in as a, you know, an Airman Basic, an E1 uh, enlisted guy. Uh, the day I walked in the doors, 1 December 1982 is when I joined. I walked in the doors, went through basic training, uh, uh, went to tech school at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And then my first duty station was at Grissom Air Force Base in Bunker Hill, Indiana. I walked in the doors there. There was a chief master sergeant by the name of Don Jewett. And he said, he took me aside, he said, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be Chief Master Sergeant in the Air Force. And that's the highest enlisted member in the entire Air Force. There's one, and he's the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, and he works in Washington, D.C. for the Chief of Staff of the Air Force. And he said, well, you know, I can't help you with that, but I can help you, you know, get down the road to being a Chief Master Sergeant in the Air Force. And I'm like, well, I guess that's a good start. Here I am, an E1, my first day in the job, and I am ditching the Chief, you know, who's God in the Air Force, you know. And I'm like, I guess we can start there. He's like, yeah, you're going to be a smartass, I can tell. So we'll, we'll get you started. So he became my mentor, one of, one of two really dominant guys. Another was Don Thomas there at Grissom Air Force Base who really – uh, became big, huge forces in my life and uh, would 
would guide me and and take care of me and point me in the right direction and smack me on the back of my head whenever I would do things wrong. Um, and I had a I had a great three years there and won numerous awards and did great things. Um, but because I did great things there, I developed, uh, you know, I, I got a little bit of an attitude and I started I started getting a little a little bit of an ego and started you know started going down a a, a road. And uh, this is a story I don't often tell, Rob. So here here I'll give you I'll give you one that I don't yeah, always tell. Love it. Uh, and um, so I just won a whole bunch of awards and, uh, Don Thomas, Master Sergeant Don Thomas, he was the military, he was the consolidated base personnel chief. He was the enlisted guy in charge of all of us. There were like 60 of us in a room, all his personnelists in a room. And he said, Hey, before you head out of town, I was driving out that day, going to the, uh, Air Force Academy to work as an enlisted guy. Uh, is support support guy at the Air Force Academy. I was going to be stationed there, and he said, "Before you leave, I want you to stop by my office." And I said, "Hey, I'm, I got the family in the car. You know, we're leaving." He goes, well, "Yeah, I want you to stop by. I got your award that you just won from like Eighth Air Force or whatever." I'm like, "Hey, great." So I said, "I want to buy you a cup of coffee." I'm like, "Okay." So I went down, and he said, "Listen, I want you to know that you are probably uh, the best airman I have ever had work for me." in the history of all my airmen I've ever had work for me in my 22 years. And I'm like, hey, I really appreciate that. He said, but as a human being, you suck. Hmm. And I went, excuse me? He said, you suck as a human being. And I'm like, can I sit down? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I was like, uh, do you mind if I sit down for a second? You know. And he said, I want you to think about some things on your 23-hour drive to Colorado from Indiana. And he, he went on to then tell me, you know, it's not about winning the awards. It's not about, you know, being the top dog. It's not about all these things. It's about servant leadership. You know, and what you've done for the last three years is you've really done great things, but you did them at an expense to other people. And that's not the way we do things in the United States Air Force. And if you want to be a great leader someday, if you really want to be a great person someday, then you need to change how you do business. And I thought about that, and he really, he really rocked my world. He turned me around 180 degrees. And I thought about that for 23 hours driving to Colorado. And when I got to Colorado, um, a person who had been one of my mentors at Grissom had gone ahead of me to Colorado, which is how I got the job there, had already had a conversation with Don Thomas and was waiting for me there to say, so – had some thinking to do on the way here, huh? We have some work to do. And so we started changing who I had been there to become the new Damien Orslane that I would go on to become and be for the rest of my life. And and if it hadn't been for his willingness to to have that moment with me, I wouldn't be who I am today. I've just been so blessed with the great men and women in my life who are willing to to take the time to, I call them angels in my life. I've had amazing angels in my life. Yeah. 
I can tell. So I don't normally tell that story, Rob. You're really bringing out the good stuff. I'll today. tell you. We start talking about you know, tra- ta- it's all about tackling trees and baseball bats and dogs, and we're we're off off to the races here. I'm telling you, yeah. but that's a that's a great story. And again, it's a, here's another coach, another mentor, another person right. of influence over you. And 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 well. I will say, despite whatever attitude you had, they also knew, because coaches usually don't do this, right? And, and a coach in the world of life is wh- whom you were dealing with right there at Don doesn't doesn't usually tell people if they don't think they're going to be receptive to it. That's my opinion. And so I think they, he, he probably recognized he had somebody and, and he probably was going to think about it for that 23 hours. And Damien, that was you. So uh, you recognize it, once again, being aware and present. So it's a, uh, what, a what a significant moment. If I, if I give myself credit for anything in my life, um, and I don't, I, I give the credit to the people that I'm very, very blessed to have known. If I, but if I do give myself credit for one thing is that I did listen to my mentors. I did listen to the people who grabbed me by my ear and shook me a little bit and said, Hey, listen, you know, pay attention here. This is, you know, this is important. And then I would, to the you know, I, I did listen to, I would say, you know, I'm going to pay attention to this guy. This guy's going to be my mentor. And then if they said, shave your head and paint it purple, then that's what I would have, you know, I mean, I, so I, I did pay attention and listen to the people who, who I wanted to be like. I picked people and said, you know, that's a good man. That's a good guy. That That's a good person. And then I would try to emulate them. And I did listen and follow their lead. And that's the only credit I will give myself is that I did, um, I, I did listen to the advice that they gave me because a lot of times I see people get the exact same advice I did and blow it off exactly. and then wonder why they weren't getting where they needed to go. Well, you have to, you have to listen. You have to do, it's not just enough to listen, but you have to do what they tell you to do. You know, you have to take the steps, you know, you have to walk the walk. It's not just enough to say you're going to do it. You have to actually do it because it's painful. You know, getting ahead in life is not easy doing, you know, I'm 50 years old. I'm training full time to to make it to the Rio Olympics. It's not easy. It sucks. You know, I'm competing against guys that are half my age. It's uh, you know, it's a uh, Paralympic sports is 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 tough business, and so it's not easy to do the right things right. Yeah. But if you are who you say you are, then what choice do you have? Hmm. You know, you have to do it, and so then. So then that's that moment. You have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, then I am who I say I am. Then we have to go do this. And that was my Don Thomas moment. You know, and I refer back to that as that's my Don Thomas moment. You know, that was my moment that I, am I going to be this guy or am I going to be this guy? Am I going to be shallow and only go for wood and awards and and step on people? Or am I really going to be that guy that I say I want to be? And at, at 19, 20 years old, I decided, no. I want to be my dad. I want to be those people that whose words and a handshake is all they need to be in life. I want to be that guy that 20 years from now, people stand up at his retirement and say, you know, at their retirement and say, this person helped me in my career. That's what's important in life. And so, you know, you have to have your Don Thomas moment too. Yeah. And until that happens in your life, then, then you really don't know what you're going to do. Yeah. And a lot of people do. They have it, they have it on a silver platter and, and they – they look back and go, I didn't take it. I just didn't take it. And uh, Damien, you did. And I think that's a great message to everybody listening. And going back to being aware, because sometimes people are telling you and you have no idea <laughs> either. I mean, at least this day, like, come in here, have a coffee and listen to me. But sometimes it, it could be in a blink of a moment. You know, it could just be uh, somebody you don't even know. 
honestly. Somebody you do know really well, and you're too, uh, I don't know what, it, what the word would be, but you're too afraid to listen. So, but you're, you are really, really sharing some valuable lessons here. Now, I do want to clarify one thing, because I think I said it wrong, and it's no big deal either way, but you didn't go to Air Force Academy. You decided to just go right into the Air Force, right? I went right into the Air Force, correct. Got it. I got That's it. Okay, so that is a pretty major shift then from going and taking a full-time scholarship. I, okay, it makes sense. I, I just wanted to clarify that one statement. Yeah. I, I misunderstood. No, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I went and uh, turned down college there and decided to go and be an enlisted guy. And, and, and then, you know, of course, that meant that I had to go to night school uh, to get my you know college degrees then and, and earn them the hard way, the much harder way uh, over the years. But because um, education is very, very important. Don't get me wrong, it is. But I just decided it wasn't the right time then. I needed to go grow up and, and learn life and and uh, and do things a different direction at the time. And so it worked out. It really, it all worked out. Yeah, there you go. Now, if you could walk us through the journey after you've gone in, you're, you're heading, uh, you're heading to the 23-hour drive was to where? I went from Grissom Air Force Base. To um, to the Air, to the United States Air Force Academy, which was a special duty assignment because that's where the Air Force grows its officers as cadets go become officers. But there are you know three thousand people there supporting them, training them, educating them, taking care of all their needs, and so those are all enlisted people and other officers. So there is a huge personnel support system there taking care of all those instructors and all those training cadre and all kind of stuff. So there's a lot of personnel there. So I was a personnel guy there for almost six years. Um, I, uh, I kept trying to get an overseas assignment because I wanted to go overseas from there. And every time that I would get an overseas assignment, uh, a natural disaster of some kind uh, would happen. I had, I had an assignment to Hawaii and uh, then Mount Pinatubo blew up. And I lost that assignment. And then I had an assignment to Germany, and the wall came down. I lost that assignment. Mm-hmm. So they kept telling me, God doesn't want me to go overseas. Right. And so they, uh, every time that, you know, the, all the assignments came out of the uh, personnel headquarters at Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. And so every time that I would lose that assignment, they would call me and they'd say, God doesn't want you to come overseas. God wants you to come here. And I'm like, I don't want to come to Texas. I want to go overseas. <laughs> so after about the third or fourth time, I had, a, I had an assignment to Spain, and I was home. Uh, my report not later than date was 31 January. I was home at Christmas saying goodbye to my mom and dad. And they called me and said that the man I was replacing fell in love with a Spanish girl over the holidays and re-enlisted and is staying and extended and is staying. So I lost that assignment. So after about the third time, they finally called me and said, dude, you're coming to San Antonio. <laughs> so from, 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 <laughs> from the Air Force Academy, I went to San Antonio, Texas, uh, headquarters of the Air Force Military Personnel Center at Randolph Air Force Base, Texas. Uh, San Antonio is a great town. Wonderful, wonderful town. Yeah. And... Um, I uh, uh, spent six years there. From there, uh, I got an email one day, a message one day that says, do you know what happens to 13-year staff sergeants that have never been overseas? Do you know what kimchi tastes like? And I said, "Uh, no. And they said, you should come down and visit me. So I went down to see my assignment clerk, and she said, here's the deal. If you uh, volunteer for Korea today, then you get to pick where in Korea and you get to pick your follow-on assignment. Tomorrow, you're a non-volunteer. I get to pick where you're going in Korea and I get to pick your follow-on assignment. So guess what I did? I volunteered for Korea. <laughs> yeah, so I went to Osan Air Base, Korea uh, in 1996 
that's where I went to end with a uh, follow-on to Peterson Air Force Base because I had just recently gotten divorced from with my uh, my uh, three children. My my ex-wife and three children lived in Colorado Springs, so I wanted a follow-on to be near them. So I was in uh, Osan Air Base, Korea, having a fun time as a very young-looking 30-year-old staff sergeant. And just got back from 10 days with my buddies at uh, Hickam Air Force Base, Hawaii, on 10-day leave. Mm-hmm. Had sworn off women, had said, we're going to just uh, have a good time and just concentrate on doing a couple classes and doing a few things. Wait till I get to Peterson, start my life over. I was only going to be there for another five or four or five, six months when uh, I was on my way to a legal appointment. And I was running down the hall to the wing to legal, you had to run right past the wing commander's office. And as I was running past the wing commander's office, I look in the double glass doors, and there sitting at the admin desk at the wing commander's office was the most beautiful girl I've seen in my entire life. And I thought, you know, I really don't need to go to legal today. <laughs> so I walked in, I sat down, and I introduced myself, and I invited her to go see the movie The Rock with Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage. <laughs> And we went that night to see that movie, and uh, we got in trouble because we sat in the back and talked our way through the entire movie. Oh, wow. And the next day, she showed up at my door to uh, ask me to go on a bike ride, which I was going to legal to, to file a claim because when I moved there, they broke all my stuff, including my bike. So we stood in the hallway and talked for three hours, and the rest is history. She uh, is now my uh, bride of 15 years. So um, she was a staff sergeant there at Korea. Um, she's from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I'm from Warren, Ohio, but we met at Osan, Korea. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. From there, we went to uh, Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs. Um, spent five years there. From there, we went to RAF Lakenheath in, uh, outside of London in England. Traveled the world from there for three wonderful years. Uh, that was very tough tours. I deployed twice from there because 9-11 happened and we got very involved and in, um, I got involved in some special things uh, with there, from there and uh, did some great uh, magnificent stuff in Iraq. From there, uh, following Lake and Heath, we came down to uh, Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. We spent the next eight years there. I made chief and we- was in a valid chief and kept begging to leave to go other places, and they kept saying no. Uh-huh. Uh, in 2005, um, we had eight and a half feet of water in our house from, uh, from Hurricane Katrina. Lost everything we owned. And we just got uh, back in our house and got our house rebuilt and got back in and got everything settled. When I got my third deployment orders and went into training and shipped out to Kirkuk, Iraq. In uh, December, November and December, I went in training. And January 4th of 2007, I shipped out for Kirkuk, Iraq for my third uh, deployment. And everybody is back in, in New Orleans at this point when you ship out? Correct. So You know, now, I, Rob, I got to tell you. Yeah. Us Mississippi people, yeah. we have a contention with that because, you know, they had a levee break, but we had a hurricane because we had 30-foot waves on our beach by our house. We are a mile from the beach, and we had 30-foot waves for a couple hours at eight and a half feet of water in my house. We had a hurricane. Wow. They had a levee break. Right. 
they got a whole lot of publicity while we didn't get a whole lot of any coverage on TV. So we're we're kind of FEMA didn't come by us at all. So I have a real complaint with not that this is the the time that you bring that up, but I got to tell you, I still have a I'm still a little upset about all. Yeah, the I can understand. Yeah, so so you're in you're in Missouri at that point when that when that hit. I mean, I'm sorry, in Mississippi when that yeah. hits. And wow, eight and a half feet. And yeah. were you, were you, did you stay there? I'm just curious. No. Did you, you, yeah, yeah. no, we had evacuated, but turned around and came right back. And we uh, went to the base and spent the next um, many weeks helping the base recover. And then we would work 12, 14 hours a day on the base and then get in our car and drive. You know, it took us 45 minutes to make a 15, 20-minute drive because the bridges were all out, you know, to get to our house, to strip our house out, trying to save our our house because we had eight and a half feet of, of, by, of bayou water mm. in our house. So it was nasty and it had been 122 degrees in the house. And so we had black mold everywhere. So we had to pull the drywall down and pull everything out. Our, everything we owned was in a big, huge pile in our front yard because we were trying to save the studs and, and what we could just so we didn't have to completely you know, demolish the house. And then uh, we would be in there at midnight with little headlamps on and the National Guard would come by and check on us and and uh, I would be tearing stuff down, and my bride Lori would be walking around with a with a container of bleach, you know, with a sprayer, spraying all the studs and spraying everything she could just to try and kill the mold as we were going because we had to try and we tried to save the house. That was the only thing we had. So it was a it was a very 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 hard time to for us, and you know, we just got the house rebuilt, and and uh, but you know, Rob, I got to tell you. We have pictures of us standing in our front yard on top of our pile of stuff, and we're taller than the roof of our house. And, you know, I looked at her, and she looked at me, and I said, are you okay? And she said, yeah, I'm okay. And, you know, it's just tough. You know, at the end of the day, we have had so much happen to us that, you know, at the end of the day, what it teaches you is is that what's really important in life is who you love and who loves you. Because the rest of it's just details. You know, the airplane didn't fall out of the sky and nobody died. It was a good day. Yeah. You know, it was a good day. It was, it, it, it was we bought better furniture. We, we found out you don't need half as many clothes hanging in your closet as you think you do, <laughs> especially when you live in Mississippi. You know, I didn't need all those sweaters anyways, you know, so that had come from Colorado or wherever the hell I was, England. You know, so, you know, you just and you turn around and you, you, just, you just do better, you know, or you just figure it out. And... And people show up and people help and America comes and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a glorious moment. You, you, as long as the real heartache, the real tragedy is people that lose people because yeah. you can't replace that. I mean there are moments. I lost all the stuff that the kids had uh, gotten me over the years because my kids are all grown up and gone you know, now because I had them when I was really young. And so you can't replace that stuff. And a lot of the old – I had been collecting – really old books all over Europe that were, you know, 150, 200 years old. And so you can't replace that stuff. And a lot of our pictures, we lost a hard drive in our computer and, and all the pictures that we had taken in Europe for over the years. So we, we can't replace any of those pictures, you know, those kind of things. So there are some real, so are some tragedies that, you know, the, things like that. But especially now with, with my traumatic brain injury, I would like to have had those videos and those pictures, you know, so that would be nice. Um, but, you know, in the big picture, I wake up next to the most amazing human being on the face of the earth every day. I have nothing to complain about. Right. So, you know, it's, it's all perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And 
in the house, I mean, that's what an image of you and putting on the headlamp there and spraying, you know, your wife, Lori's helping to spray. And I, I mean, you, you, you're really framing that picture well. Not, not easy, but uh, I love that moment of you okay. And you keep moving. And, and when did the house, were you able to save the house a little bit and get it back up? Sure. We saved the house. We rebuilt it. We were very blessed that uh, we didn't have, uh, we had homeowner's insurance to on the structure. Yep. So we were able to rebuild the structure. We didn't have uh, insurance on our stuff because we didn't have flood insurance. We weren't in a flood plain. You know, we weren't in a flood zone. Um, so we didn't have uh, flood insurance on our property. So we took a huge hit there, but still it worked out. You know, it wasn't, it worked out. You know, we, we have want of nothing. We're good. Yep. So, uh, but we got the structure rebuilt and uh, um, eventually sold it after, at the end of this whole long story, you know, getting wounded and all that kind of stuff. We now live in Pensacola. We eventually sold it for a huge loss, uh, unfortunately, um, but because of the market. But we got a, we got out from underneath it and, and now are happy campers in Florida. So yeah. it all works out. Yeah, it, it, it really does. It does. So, you deploy uh, January seventh or January fourth, two thousand seven. Correct. Is that right? And and walk us through that. You leave what is definitely a challenging situation, even though you got over it. And, and I'm guessing that timing is the house probably has just come together at that point, or probably. Close. Yeah, I think I think we uh, I think we got back in in like April, uh, March, April. You're gonna have best not to quote me on the dates because my brain doesn't really line up things uh, really really well but it was spring of 2006 is when we got back in we spent the whole summer trying to put the house back together again um, because it was still you know we didn't have anything mm. you know so now we're, we're we're the house is rebuilt but now we have absolutely nothing you know I mean you have the clothes on your back we had been living this whole time. We're living in a little tiny hotel room on base as we're rebuilding the house. So you can't buy anything. Um, so we got ourselves a pod, um, one of those little storage units. And so we're buying things little by little and sticking it in the pod so that when the house was finally done, we would have at least a little bit of clothes and a mixer or a toaster or something, you know, as we went. So we, every paycheck we would go out and, and buy what we could afford so that, you know, because we didn't have insurance money to, to replace all of our stuff. So when we finally did move in the house, it was a matter of prioritizing, okay, what do we have to have? And now let's, you know, we have to have a lawnmower because we, we bought sods and I have to cut the grass again. So we, you know, save up money, buy a lawnmower, those kind of things. Um, so we spent the whole summer just trying to get our life back in order and help our neighbors who were rebuilding. We were the first house on our street rebuilt. So they were still tearing down drywall and and doing some of the things. So we were helping everybody we could on the street, you know, do what they could. Um, so it was a, it was a very tumultuous period of time yeah. in our lives. And just as we headed into the fall is when I got notified, uh, probably September, I found out I was deploying, uh, again, I think I started training in October. I shipped out for my first training in, in November. I remember I had to go TDY temporary duty twice um, November and then once in December for like two weeks each time or some a month each, you know I can't remember I, I I left her twice and then came back I was home for Christmas and then January fourth I left for Iraq. Not an easy plane ride I'm guessing. <laughs> no, it was yeah you know and I was taking my team with me um, so I was very blessed that they let me handpick uh, the people from Keesler to go with me um, 
you know, the fruits of being a chief master sergeant. Right, right. And, uh, so I got to pick, you know, the people to go with me, and, and I was very blessed that way. And, and so we met that morning at a Denny's, uh, and I called all the spouses and all the family members together, and I, and I said, uh, we had a nice breakfast together, and as we were getting in the cars to drive to the airport, I said, all right, listen, I promise one way or another I will bring everybody home. You know, one way or another, I will bring everybody home. That's that's all I can give you. You know, war is war, but one way or another, I will bring everybody back. And uh, you know, that's that's all you can. That's the only promise. If you're if you've ever been there before, that's the only promise you can ever make. You know, you can't. I can't. You can't promise to bring everybody back alive because you're not in control of that. You know, you can't promise to bring everybody back in one piece because you're not in control of that either. And if you've ever been there before, you know that that doesn't happen. You know, people die. Shit happens. You know, you can't promise that because then you'll be a liar. And if you're smart enough, you don't make that promise because because stuff happens you just can't control. You're not God. You know, you don't do those things. But but I felt comfortable in saying, you know, one way or another, I'm getting everybody back. You know, and so uh, we all got on a bus and we all went to the airport with our weapons and uh, got on a plane and it took us five days. Oh. Gosh, five grueling days. People think you get on a plane and you go to Iraq. It doesn't work like that. It's five grueling, miserable days of, of C-130 rides and and oh, five horrible, freezing days of tents without equipment, you know, without blankets and, and aliaceline and oh, it was terrible before we finally landed at Kirkuk. We were very, very happy to finally get there. Right, right. So, so five days, you're there, family's back. What unfolds from, from there, Damien? Well, you know, uh, they had just pushed into Baghdad. That was when uh, in January of 2007 is when they made that huge push into Baghdad. And everybody that could pull a trigger and had a gun decided that they were going to go north. And if you look on a map, if you understand Iraq, you know, Kirkuk is kind of northeast of where everybody else, you know, in the, where everybody else is. And so Kirkuk had kind of been pretty quiet up till then. And uh, um, it became very unquiet. You know, uh, the harbinger for us was when we landed, we got off the airplane and the people that we were replacing were there were very happy to see us. And uh, they put all of our gear in the back of a truck and they drive us to the dining facility called the Defect. And we're in the parking lot of the DFAC, and we're all just standing around, and we're wearing our gear, and we got our weapons, and they're standing there with just their helmets on. They're not wearing their flak jackets or anything, and telling us, hey, it's been quiet, and everything, you know. And, and just as we're standing there, we just got off the plane like 10 minutes ago. We hear, thump, 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 thump. And uh, this is my third deployment. I've been around a while, and everybody on my team had deployed before. So we are already running for the bunkers and these are the people that have been there for you know five months already they're standing by the trucks and i turn around and i look at them and they're like where are you guys going and the mortars start coming in and they're like holy crap which is not the word you use in a war zone but i'm trying <laughs> to clean for you rob and um uh, and they're right now they're right i have all my gear on and i weigh a lot more than and i'm a lot bigger than they are and you cannot outrun me when there are mortars coming down. <laughs> you know, I become very, very quick in a war zone. Right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm Speedy Gonzalez when people are shooting at me. Let me tell you, <laughs> I'm, I'm quite motivated. Adrenaline is a wonderful thing. And uh, we get in a, we get in a bunker, and they're like, "Man, 
I don't understand it. They just haven't been shooting at us. I'm like, great. This is what it's going to be. And so uh, they shot at us 121 of the next 133 days. And so uh, rockets, mortars, snipers, you name it, we got shot at, you know, almost every single day. And and that's just uh, they tried blowing up, you know, driving through the gate. They tried, you know, blowing up suicide bombers. You know, it's just it was a very um, active area for the next couple of months, you know. And so um, our mission was support. That's what I was there for. I was the support chief, you know, and we were there to take care of all the personnel. We there were uh, 750 Air Force and 3,500 Army and some Marines and dogs, uh, a dog mission, um, and every other you know CIA, FBI, every other three digit you could think of was on the base, and we were converting it over to become the first Iraqi Air Force base. So you know there was a lot of provincial troops there, and it was a it was a big mission, huge mission. So they were trying to disrupt that mission. Um, so it was a really busy time, very, very busy time. And, and you want that. You want to be busy because your days are full and they go by fast. And that's exactly what you want when you're away from home, you know. Um, but, you know, we had a 10 o'clock meeting every night and we'd get together and make, we counted noses and make sure everybody was okay. And um, I smoked a lot of good cigars because, <laughs> you know, when you're in a war zone, the cigar companies send – boxes of cigars and I smoked a lot of good cigars with a lot of made friends with a lot of good sergeant majors and and you know there's there's a lot of horrible horrible things that happen in a war zone but you know there are good things that happen too you know and so I have I do have some good memories of all those of all those things and then um, and then Rob I was sitting um, parts of Rob parts of the story I usually require an adult beverage to tell I will tell you that up front but um I was sitting at my desk talking to my bride who uh, – I was a chief, E9. She was an E8, senior master sergeant. She was also, of course, stationed at Keesler Air Force Base back in Biloxi. And she was working for General Gould who was a uh, two-star general, Major General Gould who was a two-star, uh, second Air Force commander. She's uh, chief of his admin. She was running his admin shop at second Air Force uh, at Keesler Air Force Base. And so she would come in early and she would call me um, – on the military lines, and so we would be able to talk from Iraq right to Kiesler and right off of our phones. So I was talking to her on the phone when she heard me say, oh, shit, and she heard this really loud explosion through the phone line. She ran down to the operations center, and she said, I just heard an explosion through the phone line at Kirkuk. What's going on? And they said, yep, someone just drove a cement truck full of farm fertilizer and diesel fuel into the wire. And they've gone ops condition black, which is as soon as something happens at a base, we immediately shut down all communication from that base so that someone doesn't email somebody back saying, hey, I just heard Johnny got killed. And that's how Johnny's wife finds out. So we immediately shut down our communication from the base until we get a control on it and we can make notifications to the family properly. So we, we shut down the wireless, we shut down the phones, we shut down everything. So for two days, she didn't hear from me. Mm. Um, the first memory I have is I'm standing in the command post leaning on somebody and I'm hurt and I'm holding on, somebody's holding me up. And the base commander is talking to me, and he's telling me that we're out of A-positive blood. And I remember thinking, 
man, is that weird? Because I know that we had plenty of A-positive blood this morning. But there's what I don't realize is there's a seven-hour window of my life missing that it's no longer morning. It's seven hours later. Mm-hmm. And I was involved in that explosion, and I landed on my head. And I had gotten a traumatic brain injury, and I lost that seven hours, and I've never gotten it back. And that seven hours of my life is still to this day missing. Um, we uh, sent a message out to everybody. We got people running to the base hospital. Um, they were running out of the back of the emergency, out of the operating suites, running down the hill looking at your dog tags, if it was A positive, they were rolling up your sleeve, swiping it with an alcohol swab, popping your arm, taking out a pint of blood, laying you down on the grass with a Band-Aid, running right back up the hill, right back into the back of the operating suite. My brick, my radio went off and it said, uh, Persco 2, that was me, my call sign, you're needed at the hospital. And I remember thinking, you know, that's not a bad idea. I probably need to go to the hospital. So they put me in a truck and took me to the hospital and there's all these bodies lining up, and, and it's kind of chaotic over there. So people took charge, and the command chief, Lisa, Chief Master Sergeant Lisa Kessinger, was over there somewhere, and she had called for me. So I started yelling for her, and they said, Chief, she's in the back. So I, uh, I went in the back to find her, and I find her, and she's leaning up against the wall. And, and she says, hey, uh, they need help in there, but I, I couldn't do it. And I thought if anybody could do it, it would be you. And I'm like, okay. You know, and she's like, no, the, I really need help in there. And I thought if anybody could do it, it would be you. And I'm like, okay, Lisa, no big deal. And she's not a very, she wasn't a really affectionate person, but she really, she, as I head through the emergency room door, she grabs my arms and I should have known something was up right then. And she squeezed my arm and she looked in my eyes and I, and, and I pushed open the emergency room doors and Rob, I got to tell you, it, it looked like a chainsaw massacre movie. There was blood running from the dripping from the ceiling. There was blood running down both walls. There was a million bloody footprints up and down the hallway. And there was an airman down at the end of the hall, and she said, "Chief, down here." And I, and I'm like, "Okay." And my right arm is is hanging limp, and my right leg is completely trashed, and I'm dragging it behind me. So I'm I'm dragging my right side of my body down the hall, and she says, "Give me your hands." And I'm like, "What?" She says, "Give me your hands." I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? She says, Chief, don't mess with me. Give me your damn hands. I'm like, okay. So I give her my hands, and she puts gloves on them. And they said, they need you in there. And she points to my to my right. I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, Chief. She uses a whole bunch of explorative, and she pushes me towards these double doors. And that's how we do things in the Air Force. We we train our airmen to take charge. And, and in that moment, it was her hospital. And she pushes me into the operating room. And I go into the operating room, and there is is my best buddy at Kirkuk Air Base, Tom Childers, and he is a admin medical admin chief. He does admin in the hospital. That's all he does. He's gowned up, gloved up, operating. I'm like Tom, what are you doing? He's like everybody with skills is busy. We need people to do shit. Get in here. And I'm like okay. So I walk up to the table and I said, Doc, what do you need me to do? He said, Chief, hold this guy's eye in. Mm. And I'm like, what? He said, hold this guy's eye in. I'm like, okay. 
So I take my fingers and I hold this guy's eye in. And he puts this little white, white cup on this guy's eye, slides it over his eye, and he holds these three white little phalanges down. He takes his curved needle and he sews these white phalanges to the guy's face. And then he takes it off and he, this little white, it's not a Dixie cup, but it kind of looks like a little white Dixie cup, holds this guy's eye down to his face. He says, come over here, chief. And I come around the other side of the table. He says, hold this guy's arm. And I hold his arm and he cuts his arm off. He said, now put it in that red bag over there. Make sure you write his name on it. Brian Childers. I'm sorry, Brian Ritzberg, 24 years old, New York, New York, United States Army. And his, he had a black watch on it. It was still working. And I'm like, holy cow. So I write his name on it. And I put it underneath him. He said, put it underneath his, his bed so when he moves, all his parts go with him. I'm like, okay, what's next? And we were slip sliding around, and uh, blood is everywhere. He said, uh, Chief, you see those blue pads over there? I said, the ones you change babies with? He goes, good, you're your dad. Exactly. Go get a bunch of those. I said, okay. And uh, he, uh, he said, make them up into a big ball. I said, okay, make them up into a big ball. He said, Chief, come over here and stick them down my pants. Undo my scrubs and stick them down my pants. I said, what? He said, I got my hands in this guy's brain. He's got 17 holes in his head, but I really got to pee. Stick them down my pants. I said, Okay. Stuck him down his pants, he peed, I bundled him up, I tied him back up, threw him away, changed my gloves, went and got some more, got down on my hands and knees, and I started squeegeeing the blood, because as we were doing it, we were sliding all over this tile floor, there was blood everywhere, I started squeegeeing all the blood, they were stepping on my hands, I said, feet, feet, and they started stepping up, and I started squeegeeing the blood that was in the corner, and it was, it was about four or five inches deep. We put 17 bags of blood in that kit, putting all the, all the blood into the, into the corner, Sorry, I lost you there for a second. That's all right. I got you. And, and uh, we worked on that kid for hours and hours and hours. Whatever needed to be done, I did. I was dragging myself around that emergency room, one-armed, doing my hands when I could, whatever needed to be done. Because, you know, people have asked me, didn't you realize you were hurt? Shouldn't you have gotten help? Shouldn't you have been the one that would, you know what? You don't think about that kind of stuff. Because there are people that were a lot worse off than me. And adrenaline is a wonderful thing, and you don't just don't think about it. You just think about getting the job done, and you don't think about you being hurt. And honestly, I don't remember. I don't. You just don't think about it. Mm. You just do. Right. You just need it to be done. You know. So, doctor says, "Hey, listen, it's time for this kid to go." I called for the medevac, and so we called the rest of his team in. They looked like an, an old 70s rock band. They had bandages everywhere and patched eyes. and They, they refused to leave until they knew that Brian was going to get taken care of. And So we got him all bundled up, and he said, you need, you need, Chief, we can't give him any more anesthesia, so he's going to start waking up. And I said, start waking up? And I said, yeah, not like in the movies. You know, He's just going to start waking up. So I said, okay. He said, start talking to him. So I said, all right. So I started talking to him, and, and uh, I started squeezing his hand. He lost his... He'd lost his left arm, his right leg, his left eye, 17 holes in his head. So I started squeezing his hand and, and uh, started talking to him. They told me his wife's name was Carla. They were from New York. They went out of St. Louis, I think, as, as a military police unit. And I started squeezing his hand, and off we go. And then pretty soon, at first I wasn't sure, Rob, but then pretty soon I realized he's squeezing my hand. I mean – He's really squeezing my hand. So now I start squeezing his hand back, and now he's really squeezing my hand. So now I'm really talking to him. Before I was just talking to him. Now I'm talking to him in his ear. I'm like, hey, hey, 
Brian, this is Chief O. You don't know me, but the Air Force is going to take care of you, man. We're going to get a helicopter coming. Everything's going to be all right. Carla's going to meet you in Germany. Everything's going to be fine. We're getting you to Balad, you know, and everything's going to be good, man. You know, the Air Force is going to take great care of you. We're, we're now, here comes the helicopter. It lands. The little guy with the bug eye helmet jumps out. Boom, we're, now we're running, man, as fast as I can drag my leg. We're getting that helicopter. We're trying to get to the helicopter because this guy's awake, man. We got to get him there, you know, and we're, we're all these guys are hobbing along because they're all wounded, too, and we're all getting out there. And the guy, the bug guy jumps out and they snap that. They take that thing off the gurney and they snap it right in the helicopter. It's really cool. And he says, OK, chief, let go. I'm like, all right, here we go. And he says, chief, you got to let go. I said, all right, here we go. And the helicopter starts to come off and goes, chief, you got to let go. And I can't let go. He's squeezing my hand and I'm squeezing his hand. And and I can't let go. And the skid starts coming up on my face and I, I just can't let go. And Rob, I want to let go, but I can't let go. I just, I just can't let go. And I, I look at him as a dude. I can't let go. I guess, Chief, I understand. And he stalks in the mic, and the helicopter comes back down, and he jumps back down, and he pries my fingers out of Brian's hands. And he takes Brian's arm, and he tucks it inside, and he taps it down. And he passes me on the head. He says, Chief, keep your head down now. And that skid comes right up past my face, and off they fly. And I watch it fly off into the sky and i hear a whistle and i turn around and there's tommy he said hey get back in here let's play more where that came from and mm. i go back in and i'm in there for 18 hours 20 minutes into that flight brian died so i don't have a lot of memory of all the things that happened for the next four or five weeks after that i refused to be medevac twice i stayed with my team I couldn't wear my gear. I couldn't carry anything. I was in so much pain, but I refused to leave because I wanted to stay. I don't remember anything. The next memory that I know is mine is I came through the doors at Biloxi International Airport with its six gates and saw my bride standing there. I, I know that memory is mine. It's not someone read me or told me or sent me a letter about I saluted my commander and said, sir, I took six with me. I brought six home and just like I promised and told my wife, please take me to the emergency room. And she took me straight from the airport to the emergency room at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And that started a three-year odyssey of being in the hospital where they would operate on me and replace my right shoulder, replace my right hip, rebuild my right shoulder again. I have three twisted, I have three messed up vertebrae in my spine, I've got lost 60 to 70% of my hearing, two blind spots in my eyes, a horrible traumatic brain injury. So, well, horrible to me, not horrible to, on a scale of one to ten, it's probably not horrible compared to many other guys, but it's horrible enough to me. So... You operate, you get stuck in the hospital for a while, then they send you home for a couple of months to get stuck on your couch until you're well enough to go back in the hospital to get operated on again. I did that for three years until the Air Force decided that I was well enough to get medically retired. So you're this chief master sergeant who has a brain that can do anything with, can retain copious amounts of information, can juggle 19 projects at once, can, when you're an E9 by Congress, only 1% of the enlisted force is allowed to be an E-9 at any one time. Only 2% of the enlisted force is allowed to be E-8s. By Congress, it's dictated. And now you're, all of a sudden, 
you go before a medical board and they decide that you just can't do it anymore. And 90 days later, you know, by regulation, you're gone. Mm. So they were kind enough for me to let me stay a little longer. But for most people, it's that's it. 90 days, you're you're it. They let me stay to my exactly to my 28th anniversary. They let me stay to I got exactly 28 years. They let me stay to one December. My retirement date was two December 19 to December 2010. So I could say that I got exactly 28 years instead of 27 years and change. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of them to let me do at least have that. But what followed, Rob was miserable because I I felt like I. It was worse than a divorce. I felt like death. You know, I felt like it was like I had lost. I had given everything to the Air Force. I had given everything to the service. I had sacrificed, you know, a million birthdays and and things with my family and kids' plays and everything to the service. I had given everything 100% in order to make chief and do great things. And I never really got a chance to do it because I spent most of the time as a chief in the hospital. And, and then next thing you know, I'm, I'm out, you know, and – and I, I was in so much pain. I was hurting so bad. I just ended up in this this horrible, dark place. And and Rob, I am married to the most amazing human being on the face of the earth. I've got a great family. I've got a great faith life. I have got all the positive things that you would want to have in your life. But I will tell you that when you've got post-traumatic stress syndrome, which I do from those events that happened that, that day and just from being at war and when you have traumatic brain injury and when you just, things happen to you, that stuff doesn't matter. Things just go wrong quickly. And I ended up in this dark place so fast and it was so deep that I couldn't see a way out. I would go to counseling at the VA, and on my way home from counseling, I would think, I'm just going to drive my truck into this bridge. And there wasn't anything anybody was doing wrong, or they were giving me all these medication, and none of it was working. It was just this fleeting momentary thought. And then I would get over it, and I would be fine. But for that split second, it was perfectly fine to run in my truck into this bridge. And then one day, the thought didn't go away. I thought... I just can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I was in so much pain inside and hurting physically and emotionally. I just, you know, when you're in a hospital, they tell you, you're never going to run again, chief. You're never going to ride a bike again, chief. You're never going to be able to do this again, chief. Doctors mean well, Rob, but they tell you all the things you're never going to do again. And there really isn't anybody standing on the other side of your bed telling you all the things you are going to do because nobody knows what you're going to do. Right. You know? So it just really, it really affected me. So one day I just decided I just can't do it anymore and I decided to kill myself. Now I know that's a, that's a tough thing to hear, but it's true. And it happens every day. We lose 22, on average, we lose 22 veterans a day to suicide. And that's, that statistic is according to the Wounded Warrior Project. 22 veterans a day, Rob. Mm. The suicide. That's just amazing. But it's not. Because I was there. I sat on the end of the bed and the gun was right beside me. 
and I had already put the bullet in the chamber, and it, safety was off, and the, I had made the decision. And God intervened. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw, because my, and where I'm sitting on the bed, my wife's office is perpendicular to the left. I looked up and I saw this blue binder. And for some reason, it caught my eye. So instead of picking up that gun, I got up and I picked up that blue binder. And in that blue binder was all the race numbers in document protectors, because my wife's an admin troop in the Air Force. She had in document protectors all of our race numbers from all the 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons and triathlons that she and I had ever done together. All the way back from Osan, Korea to all the way through the, the somehow it had survived Katrina. I think she had it in the attic. So, um, and postcards from Europe and train tickets when we had to take a train in London and all these things. And I started going through there and I started to cry. And this thought occurred to me. It said, you know, maybe I can't think like that chief anymore. Maybe I can't be that, have that humongous brain. Maybe I can't be on that level anymore. But if I could just stand on that line on Saturday morning, if I could just be that athlete again, if I could just feel that feeling of belonging to that group after the run and just stand around and have that sense of, of belonging again, if I could just be an athlete again, maybe that's enough. Maybe that's worth not killing yourself for. Maybe that's enough. And I held on to that binder until she came home because she wasn't home. And she walked in the house and she saw me sitting on the end of bed crying, squeezing that binder to my chest. And I said, you need to get all the guns out of the house. And she ran and collected all the guns and took them next door. I said, you need to give me some help. And she took me to Keesler Air Force Base and they treated me great. And, and they got me the help I needed. And I w walked around for days with that blue binder, that blue binder, which I still have. Mm. And two weeks later, God intervened again. And I got a phone call from the Air Force Wounded Warrior Office. And they said, listen, there's a new thing that's going on. It's called the Wounded Warrior Games, where the four services are going to compete against each other in a Paralympic summer-style game at the, at the Olympic Training Center in May. And the Air Force is putting together a team, and we understand that you're swimming for therapy. And I said, they don't need a 45-year-old pudgy ball guy, and I hung up on them. <laughs> that's the truth. And two days later, a retired chief there at the Wounded Warrior Office, Brian Churchill, called me back and he said, Damien, listen, we're allowed to bring 25 athletes to the games. We have six. None of them are swimmers. If you can make it from one end of the pool to the other without drowning, I need you. I said, Brian, seriously, dude, I've never competitively swim. What I do, I wouldn't call swimming. And he said, I'm serious. I said, he said, meet with the – at least call the coach. So I called the coach, Cammie Stock. And Cammie – used to became engaged, now Cammie Stock, and she was Air Force athlete, Air Force Academy Athlete of the Year, Air Force Athlete of the Year, uh, an Olympic trials triathlete. She now runs the Paralympic triathlete program. She's an amazing human being who I love dearly. She's my life coach. And I called her and she said, what do you want? And I said, I want to feel like an athlete again. And she said, I can help you with that, but you can't quit. And she flew Lori and I out to the, to the Air Force Academy for camp. And she swam with me in a pool. And that first year, I swam for the Air Force Wounded Warrior um, uh, team. And uh, I almost drowned to death in the pool. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I tried my best. I didn't win, but I tried. Uh, <laughs> you know, the second year, I trained and trained and trained and trained and trained. And I went back and I swam again. And I got my butt kicked by 20-year-old Navy SEALs. 
And I said, one-legged Navy SEALs. And I said, Coach, I need another damn sport. <laughs> I'm jumping in the water, and they're already in the locker room eating a sandwich. This is embarrassing. <laughs> Different sport. She said, yeah, you're probably right. So she sent me to a camp. Uh, in San Diego, where they did all the different sports. And uh, one day was track and field day. And I picked up the javelin, and I threw it, and the wrong end stuck in the ground. And they said, you know, that's probably not for you. <laughs> they gave me the shot put, and I threw the shot put, and it was like, grunty and everything. And I thought, oh, that just doesn't feel right. And they gave me this discus, and I threw the discus, and they went, <whistles> and the guy said, here, do that again. And they went, <whistles> and he said, how old are you? And I said, 46. He goes, man, too bad you're not younger because Paralympics is a young man's sport. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, go, go back and tell your coach you want to throw discus. So I went home and I said, coach, I want to throw discus. And she said, no way in hell is your wife going to let you throw discus on that shoulder. You spent two years trying to get that shoulder. I said, honey, I want to throw discus. And she said, no, you are not throwing discus. I have spent two years of therapy, now three years of therapy on that shoulder. It's frozen for eight months, MRSA, everything else. There's no way you're throwing discus on that shoulder. I said, but babe, she's no, that's okay. Go talk to your surgeon. There's no way your surgeon's going to sign that piece of paper. Went to go see the surgeon, little, Ar- little Armenian lady, Dr. Major K. She's an amazing lady. I love her to death. She did all my surgeries. She said, you are my best piece of work. I was in there six hours the first time, four hours the second time. I wrote a paper on you. There's no way in hell I'm letting you throw a discus on that so- shoulder. I went back to the coach. Coach said, what did they say? I said, they love the idea. <laughs> there you go. I started throwing discus. That first year, I got a bronze medal in discus, and uh, uh, I thought, you know what? I, I really like that. I had to throw from a chair because I can't spin around because of my traumatic brain injury, so I sit in a specialized throwing chair, and I got a bronze medal in discus, and I got a bronze medal in seated volleyball, and a bronze medal in wheelchair basketball, and a bronze medal in recumbent biking, and I thought, you know what? I've, I've done what I came to do. I, this is it. Our house was going to be built in, in Florida. It's time to go fishing. I don't need to do this anymore. And uh, and I told the Wounded Warrior team I wasn't coming back. I thought, this is we're done. Thank you very much. Right. And um, But God had other plans for me. And that that summer, the house didn't get built. And I started getting antsy because we're not one August. I usually, start tra- I usually started training for May. And uh, by October, I was starting to really get on my wife's nerves. And... She said, how about we go to a Mobile Bay Bears baseball game? And you need to start thinking about what you're going to do because I think you need to go back to uh, the one more Warrior Games because you're driving me nuts. <laughs> and I said, honey, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. And she said, maybe you need to ask God for a sign. This is, and Rob, this is, a true, this is exactly the true story. I said, and we said, she said that to me in the parking lot of the Mobile Bay Bears baseball game. I said, okay. We go in, get our tickets, we sit down, there was nobody else there, so they gave us third base, first base box seats right on the on the on the right on the line. Second inning or so, I hear this voice that sounds just like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, t- I turn around, there's this humongous guy, six foot eight, broad, huge shoulders, probably, I don't know, three hundred and fifty pounds, come walking in. He's wearing a Hungarian Olympic team polo shirt sits down next to me. I said, what do you do? He said, well, I just retired from the Hungarian Olympic team for my fourth season. All I've ever done or all I've ever known is uh, throwing. I'm a disc. I thrown shot put discus hammer and javelin for the Hungarian Olympic team. 
I live here in Mobile. My wife's from here. We went to Auburn together, but you know, I have dual citizenship, but I've always thrown for Hungary. I said, my dad's Hungarian Croatian. I said, no kidding. He said, what do you do? I said, I'm a thrower. Here I am. Here's this big guy. Everybody around us started laughing. I said, I, I throw for the Air Force. I'm a Wounded Warrior team. He said, no kidding. I said, yeah, but I just don't know what I'm going to do. He said, uh, I said, I got a bronze medal. He goes, do you have a coach? I said, no. He said, how'd you like to cover that up? I'll be your coach. Oh, <laughs> no kidding. His name is Gabor Matei. And uh, Coach Gabor Matei became my coach. He's a four-time Olympian for the Hungarian uh, Olympic team. And uh, Coach Gabor, um, we we coached together for probably three months. And I went on to uh, win a silver medal in, in discus, a bronze medal in shot put. And I got recruited by the Olympic Training uh, Center to uh, try out for the Paralympics to see if I could qualify for the Paralympics and get classified, which I did. And next thing you know, um, I'm throwing for the Emerging Athlete Program, which is basically the Olympic team, farm team, um, that year to see uh, if I could do great things coming up, which uh, led to this year. And, uh, you know, Rob, it's just been, it's just been an, uh, an amazing uh, an amazing journey we got we got going into this year um, coach uh, Matei trained coach Gabor he trained at the athletes performance in Gulf Breeze Florida which is a professional training facility where they hold uh, combine every year and he went and talked to them and said hey this guy needs to this Paralympic dude needs to train with you and they said uh, uh, well this you know this is expensive training and I said I can't afford two nickels to rub together and they said uh, okay we'll see what we can do and I started training there full-time on the 15th of September last year and they said well if you are willing to do a promotional thing here or there Alex and Leanne Cross sat down with me and I said I'd be willing to help out any way I can and they fell in love with me and I fell in love with them athletes performance they're now called Exos and I've been there for 10 months now and uh, I just keep showing up and they haven't kicked me out yet and so they're just, it's an amazing professional training facility that has, that takes wounded warriors and uh, athletes and gives them NFL professional type rehabilitative training and that gets them back in a fight um, and, and does amazing things for me, transforms my complete body wow. and lets me do amazing stuff. So, and uh, that led to a great spring. There's the Wounded War Heroes is a nonprofit out of Louisiana that uh, um, the only way we were able to do some of the traveling that we did is they gave us some support. Thank God bless them or we would not have been able to do it. And between those two people, we've had a great spring that led to our uh, shot at nationals. And then halfway through the year, disaster struck, Rob, because I was the number one discus guy in the country, number three discus guy in the world. And the Olympic training, uh, the International Paralympic Committee decided that not every event was going to Rio. And uh, they decided that for my classification, which is I'm an F-34, discus wasn't going to Rio in 2016. And I'm not the best shot putter in the world. Right. And so they said, hey, uh, have you ever tried javelin? And I said, I've never touched a javelin in my life. And if you have ever thrown javelin, it's over top of your head, and discus is beside you, and it's a completely different motion. Right. And all this muscle that I packed on all winter was suddenly in my way. 
And they said, well, you have eight weeks till nationals. Maybe you could figure out how to throw javelin. I said, it takes years to learn how to throw javelin. And they said, well, good luck. So Coach and I uh, ordered a bunch of javelins, and we started training. And I was not a very good javelin thrower, Rob. <laughs> but God, uh, I said, you know, I, we, we actually opted out of a track meet or two and, um, because I wanted to be a good steward of people's money, and I didn't want to waste stuff. And I said, this is it. We're done. We're going to retire at the end of the year because I wanted to be a discus guy, and this just isn't what was going to happen. And if God wants us to keep going forward, then something will happen. And uh, somehow I qualified for nationals in shot put, probably because I was mad that weekend. I qualified <laughs> nationals. And then uh, two weekends later, I qualified for nationals, how I don't know, in javelin. And so we showed up for nationals, and I was saying goodbye to everybody. You know, I said, you know, I just don't think we're going to – I would love to keep going, but, you know, I, I want to do great things, but I just don't know. It's up to God. And, and, you know, and that's how I live my life. I really do. And when we got there, I, uh, I threw a new world's record in javelin. And Rob, I can't explain it to you. Wow. You know, I just – I believe I'm meant to do this. You know, I believe we're meant to – to that he's got a plan he's always had a plan you know he's he's you know there have been some stumbling blocks along the way but i believe that as long as you keep faithful and as long as you keep your head up and as long as you keep remembering that that which does not kill us makes us stronger then then you know then good things are going to happen out of it and as long as you keep a positive attitude then you know then it's going to be okay i did i had didn't have my international license because we thought we were done for the year you know we thought we were done forever so we didn't bother getting our international license so the world record ended up not counting as a world record because I wasn't internationally licensed so it ended up being just a humongous uh, national record so I'm gonna have to go do it all over again but um, because I'm getting internationally licensed January Rob there you go, there you go. Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> so, you know, it's just uh, um, it's been a heck of a it's been a heck of a year Rob so Damien you mentioned the blue notebook uh, that had the photos and or the what would you call those the the race? Oh yeah, the race numbers. Yeah, the yeah, race the, numbers. The nice blue binder had all the race numbers and the and the the train tickets and everything in it. All the memorabilia for all of our race days together, all of our life together. Yep. And and so during, of course, what you just took us through there, uh, there was a lot going on, and it demanded that complete isolation and in story but when we go back i'm curious you left football obviously went to the air force but uh where did all of these race tickets come into play when did it start uh you, you're very active i could tell with with your wife you're active and that that saves you later on but what's the journey of that book does that make sense yeah yeah sure you know i never left sports um you know, sports isn't something that you just comes and goes in your in your life. When I joined the Air Force, uh, you know, the Air Force was very active. I immediately got involved uh, with uh, my squadron and squadron sports. I stayed involved with baseball the whole time. I played uh, baseball leagues and uh, stayed involved with baseball uh, all the way into my uh, 20s and uh, tried, you know, some double-A stuff all the way through Texas and and tried to, you know, my hand here and there, tried some traveling leagues, but never really, nothing ever really developed um, there. I couldn't hit with a shit. I was a good catcher, but I never really, I never had good eyes, you know. 
Um, and then, you know, that developed into the squadron softball teams and flag football. And, and then uh, um, I, if you were to see me, you'll understand why I throw shot put and discus for a living. I'm not really built for, for long distance running. So, but, you know, um, I had a stint as a bodybuilder and a, and a, a power lifter. And I've got the legs and the body for it, but uh, eventually developed into a 5K and 10K. That might have to blame my wife for that, uh, Lori. She, when we met in Korea, she was a runner, and she said, "Hey, we're going to do a 5K together." And I thought, "I've never run that far before in my life." But she was really beautiful, and I thought, "Well, okay, here we go." And so that was my first 5K, and so uh, she kept that race number, and and that really is where it it started was in Korea. That was my first 5K, I think, ever. Now that I think about it, and uh, and we just we just started from there, and it was. It was uh, something that we did together, and and you just get you just become part of your it becomes part of your social being. It it's not only the the, the staying in shape, which is all the you know the, the exciting part of it, but but it's that belonging, that sense of belonging to that second social group. You meet, you see the same people on Saturday morning. You stand on that line. You you feel that sense of excitement when the gun goes off. And then afterwards, you talk about your performance and how you're going to do better next week, and and you wave that T-shirt to each other as you get in the car and you go home, and and you know, and there's just something about belonging to that group, and that very powerful pull is what saved my life because I thought, you know, maybe if I could just because I was adrift, Rob, I was lost. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens to us is we get lost. We belong to this very powerful group. We belong to this military group. We belong to this family, this military family. And then all of a sudden we're adrift and we're kicked out or we're, we're separated. We're retired. We're, 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 you know, we're, we're pushed to the side and suddenly we're adrift. And, and now, you know, we're like, what the hell? And now what are we going to do? And, and I thought, I remember belonging to another group. And if I could belong to that group again, that maybe could save me. And that was the draw that pulled me back. And that blue binder is where I remembered that second family. Because I remembered that second draw, that second belonging, that second sense of, hey, this is something else in my life. And that was belonging to sports, that belonging to that sense of family, that that's you know staying after the game and having a beer after the softball game or hanging around the swimming pool after the meet or whatever that that keeps coming us back every Saturday morning or, or Wednesday nights or whatever it was there was always that sense of belonging that athletes always have after the sport and I wanted that I needed that that's what saved my life and that binder encapsulated inside that binder inside those little numbers was all that family just waiting for me to remember that. And when I saw all that, that emotion came back to me, and I thought, if I could feel that again, then I don't need to pick up this gun. I can go find that again, and I need to go look for it. And I did, and that's what saved my life. It's incredible. I mean, it really is. We talk about life lessons of sports all the time here, and and we don't – yeah, I mean, that, that the before, the after, the buildup – getting in the car as you mentioned the wave of the shirt these are all those little things but they add up to so much more than just as i always say the scoreboard or 
I mean, I know you mentioned staying in shape is a plus and a bonus, and it's great, right? It's, it's, that's what we need to do sometimes as humans to keep that pulse or get that energy out, but it really is that binding effect, and that's, uh, that's what I'm hearing from you. It's, you know, we discount the, um, we all, I think, Rob, sometimes as athletes, we, we take for granted the emotional and the psychological side of what we do, and we focus too much sometimes on the physical side of what people look like or, or what physically it's doing for us to stay in shape or how it's making us feel, et cetera, et cetera. And we, and, and we discount or we take for granted the emotional and psychological aspects of, of all this, you know, the social norm and the social, the, the social part of it. And not only this the social part of it, but the, physiological and the in the emotional part of it that is so important to sports that you know that's so important that that for our children that is so important you can't live in isolation it's so important for us as young adults and as and, and as older adults that we need to get out there and be together and kick the ball around or throw the ball around or just get out there and, and interact with each other and have a nice clean you know fun three-on-three basketball game on a Saturday morning and the stress of the week will go away you know it'll just change your life it'll make a big difference get off the couch and go out there because if I can do this you can do this and and believe me it makes a difference in your life and and that's the message is is you know there are great things waiting for you out there it saved my life it'll save other people's too yeah that's a great it's a great message Damien it it really (laughs) it really is if you could um I want to. I want to. If you're okay with talking about, it, I want to talk about your your injury for a second. Sure. Okay. Um, so you're in the middle of what you described as, as basically hell when when you know you're talking about your admin and full gear and, and, and helping and the helicopters coming in and just you know it's it's a it's a rough rough situation. It's so rough you don't even know what's happened to you really. You just kind of probably are feeling something. When I when I was taking down my notes here. Um, when things settled down, what what was next for you? Like what what was it? Like what happened? You you had a con- concussion, you had broken leg, broken arm, broken shoulder. What was exactly that? I had, uh, you know, I don't remember uh, the vast majority of the last five, four to five weeks of my being at Kirk Air Base. The vast majority of it had to be retold to me. Or I had to read it in reports, or people had to write me letters, or I had to sit down and get do interviews with people, and that's because of the traumatic brain injury. Um, the injuries that I had is my right hip was crushed and had to uh, um, was completely damaged and had to be totally replaced. Um, my right shoulder was complete, you know, was torn practically off and had to be re- reattached in six places. Um, they had to cut off an inch and a half of my clavicle. Um, they went in six hours the first time and decided that they were in there long enough and enough to, they did the shoulder surgery first and then did the hip replacement second and then went back in the second time with the shoulder surgery because they needed to go back in for four more hours the second time to clean up what they didn't do the second time, the first time, I mean, excuse me. Um, so, uh, this whole right side and again, I don't, you know, all I know is that I was on the phone and then next thing I know, I'm standing in the command post. So what exactly happened to me? I have no clue. Um, so, you know, and that's always a big question in your life. You always want answers to those things, but I've had to come 
to peace with a lot of that because it'll drive you insane. And that was a lot of what put me in that dark spot because you want those answers, you're not getting them, and it drives you crazy and you have to just let some of that you have to let some of that go and you have to move on. At some point you just have to let that go and move on to the next day. And just deal with what you have to deal with and and and, and look forward to the next day. And and so I've had to do deal with that. I have uh, three really bad vertebrae in my in my spine and uh, uh, two blind spots, one high in my left eye, one low in my right eye. Lost the vast majority of my hearing um, and just have a, have a traumatic brain injury that has pretty much – which traumatic brain injury, when you say a traumatic brain injury, everybody's traumatic brain injury, Rob, is different. Mm-hmm. My particular traumatic brain injury is the frontal lobe. And with it, it brings horrible balance problems. It, uh, I have short-term memory issues. I have cognitive reasoning issues. I have lost my executive function, which means that um, I can no longer balance more than one project at a time. Basically, I, I have ADD. You know, basically, I can't. Uh, I have focusing issues. I can't. Uh, I can no longer juggle three, four, five things at once. I have to focus one thing at a time. Uh, my wife has to follow me around the house and say, "Hey, focus on this. Focus on." That. I can't go past television without distracting me. You know, I mean, it just it really has, really has screwed up my life in a major way. Especially when you're a guy who's a who's top one percent of the Air Force, and now all of a sudden you can't balance a checkbook anymore. It has, you know, it's it's taken your life and and you know, ruined it in a million ways. And and then that just affects you emotionally and, and, and in your head, and you, like you just can't believe. Yeah, no, I, I, and I was about to ask you about TBI because I, I'm just going to kind of ask bare bones questions here. I mean, were you truly familiar with what TBI was before this happened? No. Uh, no, you know, we, uh, we really didn't have an understanding of what traumatic brain injury was in 2007 it really didn't become an issue until much, you know, after that. It really didn't become a watchword until 2010, 2011. Um, so in 2007, we weren't screening for it. We weren't looking for it. You know, when I first came home, I was in so much pain from my hip and my shoulders, and I was on so much medication that, that I didn't even get screened for a traumatic brain injury until it was, you know, way later. You need to catch a traumatic brain injury within the first six months of having a traumatic brain injury. Then you can really do something about it. Within the first six months to 12 months, then, you know, it's not as easy to do something about it. After 12 months to 24 months, then, you know, then you're really playing with fire. And after 24 months, it's too late. You got what you got. And that's basically what they tell you. Well, it was 24 months before we even took the tests for traumatic brain injury. And they said, oh, man, you have traumatic brain injury. And I'm like, well, what can we do about it? And they're like, well, basically, you're screwed because now it's too late to really do anything preemptive. We just have to see what we can do from here. And and that was because I was in constantly in the hospital from all this, you know, from all the body stuff. And I was completely, constantly medicated. And you're and when you're on, when you have traumatic brain injury and you're already uh I was in a fog all the time, you know, I mean, it, it was, I was just in a fog, I was constantly medicated and that messes with your head already and then when you have a, a brain injury on top of it, it's just no wonder that I, I'm amazed that I didn't kill myself, honest to God, I just am, I'm amazed I didn't kill myself because it's just, you're just walking, wandering around in this daze. It's, it's God intervened and, and took care of me, there's no other, other, no other answer to it, Rob. Yeah, and this next comment is just factual and I, it was interesting because some of my listeners, the, the, my listeners, some of our listeners here, I know will put this irony together. So you mentioned Mike Webster. Are you familiar with the book League of Denial? 
No, I am not. Okay, so League of Denial came out a couple of years ago now, and I'm, I'm not, I haven't read it front to back every single word, but I, I'm pretty familiar with it. And Mike Webster is basically the subject of that book for being the first NFL football player to be to be diagnosed with TBI or at least. Oh, a, no kidding. Yeah, I mean, and, and any listeners out there are probably correcting me here and there, but I'm, I'm, I'm close. <laughs> I know I'm close. And it was one of those things where uh, obviously – you know, post, post, uh, he went through a lot of, no one knew, no one knew. I mean, this was back in the day, right? He was like Mike Webster, the, the guy, right. <laughs> as you mentioned, you know, right. revered by millions probably. And, but I, it's, it was just interesting when you said that in the beginning, but yeah, it's one of those books that talks about the NFL and, and league of denial. You can kind of take it from there and, and sure. what happened, but you might find it interesting um, but that's obviously for you to decide. But I, I had picked up on that earlier. And, of course, now it is a, a hot-button topic um, right. for so many different reasons, and thankfully it is, right? As you mentioned, time can really help out. And so you hear about it in the NFL and everything else, but you must have – you know, you hear about it in the NFL because people are getting hit over and over and over again. And, and, and in your case, it was just one blow, Right. Correct. You know, it was it was just that that one major explosion, and you know that one thing thrown into a concrete wall or whatever else can you know that one thing. It's all it takes. And we have troops in combat that are constantly being you know smashed into the top of their Humvees or being involved in multiple explosions. And because they're out in FOBs that are forward operating bases that are far away from any medical help, they're you know they come back, they get looked over by a you know, a, a trained medic who looks at them and says, hey, I think you're okay, and they go back out of combat the next day, not knowing that they have the beginnings of a traumatic brain injury that's getting again and again and again and again, and, and you know, and it's not caught until their tour is up a year later, and of course, it's already too late. So, you know, it's um, traumatic brain injury is, is, again, everyone's is different, and that's the problem. You know, there isn't a template that I can put over top of your head that's going to fit yours and mine and his and the next guy's and an NFL player and, a, and an NBA player who falls on a hardwood floor and bangs his head is completely different than, you know, a guy that gets blown up, you know. So, but but it's all, it all fits in the same package where it's damage to your brain, and we need to keep, we need to keep pressing forward on it because, it's it's life changing mm-hmm. and not in a good way, Rob. No. When you right now go out to practice and train, uh, is that like are you? Is there some good days, bad days, like most people do when they go out to train, or is this like a serious relief? You can't wait to go out there. What's your mindset when it comes down to training and having that goal of Rio right now? And I know there's a lot of steps in between, but. A lot of people have described, regardless of what is happening in their life, as an emotional um, outlet. I I look forward to training. I'm uh, I've always enjoyed training. I, I'm I always enjoyed working out. Um, I will tell you that at 50 years old, it is a grind. It's it's a lot harder to you know. I train um, in the non throwing season. I'll, I go back into uh, – I'm in the off-season right now. Yay. <laughs> uh, I only get three months off-season. But um, the first Monday in October, I will head back into full-time training, which is uh, in the non-throwing season, which is between now and January. I don't throw. I just uh, will train really heavy and, and, and lift, try to pack on more muscle. 
uh, which were a shot put and javelin guy. That's what you're trying to do. And uh, uh, so between now and January, I won't throw it all. I'll just be hitting the gym really hard. Uh, I'll be training five days a week. Wow. And so I really look. I look forward to that. There are there are. I'd lie to you if I didn't say there are good days and bad days. There are good days you go into the gym and you have a fantastic day in the weight room where you have a good, really good mobility day where you're out there doing great things. And then there are days where your body, especially at my age, and I think that that's the real science, you know, that's the real w- benefit of wisdom where when I, when I was younger, I would have pushed it anyways. And, the, you know, when I was younger, if I wasn't feeling good or I wasn't feeling it, I would get into the weight room and I would say, oh, you know, who cares? And I would press anyways. But now – when I get in the weight room and I'm not feeling it, I back off because injuries are so much harder to recover from nowadays. You know, and I, last year I ended up with a stress fracture and I was down. I ended up in a hospital for four, four days with an infection that got in the stress fracture and by antibiotics. And, and I was out for six weeks, you know, on that stress fracture. And so and it teaches me a very valuable lesson, and that is you just have to really listen to your body. And so you do what you can, and you press forward, and, and on the days that you're not feeling it, you back off. For the days that you are, then you hit it really hard, and, and luckily for me, there aren't too many of those not feeling it days. Uh, because of my traumatic brain injury, I suffer from, um, from uh, very bad headaches. I, uh, I'm very susceptible to changes in pressure, and I have uh, um, balance issues and I uh, suffer from really bad headaches. And there are just some days that I wake up with a bad headache and um, have some really bad balance issues. And those just aren't the days to go wandering around a weight room. And so, you know, I'll, I have a great relationship with my trainers and with my physical therapist at Athletes Performance, Andrew and Paul, who's my trainer. And I'll call them and text and we'll come up with a game plan. And, you know, we have a great relationship now that we've been doing this for 10 months. And it's better to just take a day off and, and you know, and or go in just for the morning session and go through physical therapy and maybe hit the cold tub and have lunch and call it a day and skip the weight room session than chance taking an injury and passing out on a piece of equipment and banging your head and then who knows what happens, you know? So, (laughs) right. So it's, it's wisdom has taught me it's better to, uh, it's better to survive, to train another day. Yeah. What have you learned from, and I hope I say his name right again, the Hungarian coach, is it Gabor? Gabor. Yeah. What have you learned from him? How's that relationship like? Rob, it would take another hour or two. (laughs) Things I've learned from coach Gabor, you know, he is the most amazing guy. You need to talk to him. He is wonderful. Um, he is the best coach in the whole world. He knows so much stuff. Um, he is a great thrower, but he's a great throw coach. He, but he knows my personality and he knows how to deal with me. And I'm the guy that wants to throw 60 throws on the day that we're only supposed to do 40. You know, and so he knows how to temper me. You don't have to. You don't have to work hard to get me to. You don't have to push me to work. Get me to work hard. You have to hold me back. Right. And that's you know I overtrain, and that's the problem. And so he knows how to get the most out of me, you know, and and with the, while tempering me. And I over. I have a tendency to overthink. And so he has. He knows how to get me to quit thinking and perform and get me to get outside of my own head and just let my body do it because I know how to throw. So quit thinking about it. Let's just do it. And and he's just a great guy. And when it's time to think about it, we break it down and we think our way through it and we talk our way through it and we have great strategy. And 
Uh, we get along so well together. It's just, it's just a, just a wonderful man. I've really have. We've been together two years now, and I really, really enjoyed our time together. It's, it's a godsend. He really came into my life at the right time, and uh, I have no doubt that together he and I are going to go to Rio. Yeah, that's what a collision you guys had at that minor league baseball game that night. That's incredible. Yeah, Mobile Bay Bears baseball yeah. game. It's amazing. Right, right. It's uh, that's it. Yeah. Um, um, by the way, by the way, talking about Mobile, we had a general manager of that team on the show of the Mobile. No Bears. kidding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the Bay Bears. Yeah, and 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 okay, so you got these. The, there's a museum there too, right? Um, Hank Aaron. Yeah, Hank Aaron. There we go. That's right. Bingo. Hank Aaron. All right. That's it's just right. coming back to me. Okay. Yeah, and we were talking about in the in the bear and the mascot and all sorts of crazy oh, stuff. Oh yeah. yeah we, had, we had a good time. A great museum. Oh yeah, Hank Aaron museum's there. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's all good. But yeah, what a crazy collision! And, and, and is he coaching other people as well? Did he, or is just yeah. you guys? No, he has. Uh, I'm his only para. I'm his only para athlete. He has um, a couple um, high school athletes. He would be um, a phenomenal full time coach. You know, he has. He's gifted, and he had. He would be um, a great asset to any collegiate program. But um, it hasn't happened yet, and so right now he's working in a bank. Um, and he's training high school athletes on the side and he trains me on the side, um, which is a shame because he, it, but you know, I think that, and I don't know why, I don't know if it's because of, um, coming from Hungary and being, the, you know, being the Hungary team versus the USA team or, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's politics involved or I, you know, honest to goodness, I haven't given much thought. I really don't know why, but, but, um, he would be a great asset to, to anybody's, uh, uh, throwing staff. He is just a phenomenal coach and I love him to death. He's really done, but they can't have him until he's done with me. So two years that's from right. now, that's it right. would be a great <laughs> asset. Not yet. That's right. Not until, that's right. Uh, no, no, not until that journey, uh, that part that's of right. the journey. is. Not until Rio. That's right. So, so Rio, let's focus on Rio for a second. We have Rio coming up 2016. What is the, what's the road here? What, what, what do we have to get, uh, in regards to obstacles and challenges. Wow. And I mean, I've had Olympians on here and, and, and nothing has been chalked up even with world-class gold medalists, you yeah. know? And so I just have really underappreciated what you got to go through. Yeah. It's a, it's a journey, you know, um, especially, uh, as a Paralympian, you know, you're not sponsored. And so you have to, I want to just throw, you know, I want to train and throw. I don't want to have to have a GoFundMe page and go out there and do Facebook updates and do blogs. And I don't have time for that. I go to, I get up at, you know, I leave the house at 6.30 in the morning. I'm there at 7. I get home at 4.30 uh, in the afternoon. I go to bed. She wakes me up. My bride wakes me up at 6 o'clock for dinner. I have dinner with her. I go to bed at 9 o'clock. I do it all over again the next day. You know, that's my life. I'm, I'm training full time. And, and, but it, it costs us you know, a ton of cash last year because you have to fund your own track. We go basically go to five track meets and then we had the goal for 2014 was to make nationals. You have to get invited to nationals. And so you get invited to nationals, you have to meet certain goals to get invited to nationals and then you go make a name for yourself at nationals. So by the skin of our teeth, we got in on shot put um, because halfway through the year, the International Paralympic Committee decided for my particular classification, discus, which is what I really was throwing, wasn't going to make it to Rio. They asked me to uh, try javelin. We picked up javelin, 
And lo and behold, God decided to send me a, a message, and I figured out Javelin right at the end of the track year, and we qualified for Javelin to go to Nationals. And then at Nationals, uh, some beautiful people stepped up in our lives at the very last minute called the uh, Wounded uh, War Heroes. Uh, uh, some guys, some good old boys out of Louisiana who take wounded warriors hunting and fishing, and they uh, sent us a check so that we could go to Nationals. And we got on a plane, Coach Lori and I went to Nationals, and we threw a new national shot put record in a new world, a new national record in Javelin. And so basically what that does now is that sets me up for next year. And I went there to make a name for myself, and I did. That gets me set up to have a pretty good shot at making the national team. And coming into 2015, then the whole goal is to make the Pan Am Games in August of 2015 for Ontario, Canada. They're going to take about 80 athletes to the Pan Am Games, and from those 80 athletes, they're probably going to take about 46 to Rio. So you have to really, and chances are, if you're a one-trick pony, if you're a one-medal guy in track and in field, because the vast majority of people they take are track, you probably don't have a good shot, but if you're a two medal guy, if you're if you're uh, if you're within the top three in the world in shot put and in javelin, then you have a pretty good chance of going to Rio. Yeah. So I have to up my shot put game because right now I'm nationally ranked, but not internationally ranked, and I am the I do hold the even though it does it wasn't a world record, I still have the farthest throw in the world right now for javelin. So. Um, I'm doing pretty good javelin wise, but I have to kind of up my game, hit the weights really hard and up my game shot put wise. But that's the, that's kind of the path. Pan Am games, 2015, keep packing the, the muscle on, keep training hard. I got to work on the funding because that's what's the only thing that's going to hold us back is to try and get up, get a sponsorship somewhere because that's, what's going to kill us along the way. And, uh, and Rio's right down the road. Yeah. It'll be here before you know it, Rob. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it happens so fast. It's amazing. Why, why is the sponsorship – I mean, of course, it's money. I get that. But why so – I know nothing about the sponsorship of Olympics, so forgive me. I know some countries, they don't need sponsors. They, they fund everything, right? Uh, but, but why so – Difficult. I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I, I, there's, I have a heart and the courage to, to kind of be with you there as you're going through this because, first of all, it's sports. That's the number one reason. And second of all, you're, you know, you're doing something against the odds. Let's say what it is, but you're, you're out there, man. You're doing it. You know, I'm 40. There's no chance, no chance what you give me. I'm not going to any Olympics, no matter how you cut it. And he, one would think, that's a great statement, right? One would think there would be a lot of support there for this. You know, yes, you would think so. And and especially as a, you know, Rob, especially as a wounded warrior, you know, I thought that as a wounded warrior that there would be organizations that I could turn to, that, that there would be handed me money that, you know, and I'm not looking for, I'm not trying to, I'm a good steward, you know, I'm a good steward of people's cash, but so far people have wanted to give me hats and clothes and they want me to wear their t-shirts and they want me to eat their supplements and they want me to wear their clothes or put their, their sticker on my javelin case 
but they don't want to give me, you know, a gas card. I can't, you know, I spend four hundred fifty dollars a month on my truck driving into Mobile and back into Golf Breeze and back for training and for throwing to my coach twice a week. And they don't, you know, they don't want to give me traveling expenses to take myself to and you know to and coach to five track meets a year. You know, airfare, rental car, food, you know, whatever. Just you know, if it if it wasn't for if it wasn't for uh, Exos Athletes Performance and Golf Breeze, and if it wasn't for the Wounded War Heroes in Louisiana, this would have shut down already. We would have had to have quit because there's no way we could have pulled it off this year. And that just breaks my heart because we have a real chance here. We have a real chance of making it to the Olympics. I mean, holy cow, I'm competitive. Yeah. And, and it just as God that these guys in Louisiana decided, you know, they're going to put some money together and send it to me. And 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 Alex and Leanne uh Lincoln and, and Golf Breeze have a huge heart, and you know they're taking care of us for training-wise and not charging us, and or paying it for, through uh, through an equal fund, you know, through a comeback uh, initiative. It's just absolutely amazing that they're so generous to me. It's just you would just it, it, I just don't understand why it's why it's so hard. Um, in the beginning, I thought that the Olympic Committee makes it hard because. I know for a fact they make it hard on you, uh, in my opinion, because they want people who want it. You know, they there were when when I got recruited, there were ten guys that got recruited, and now there's only two of us out of those ten left that I even see around. So you know, there were a bunch of people that were sending texts and Facebook posts and how they're going to Rio and blah blah blah, and it was a summertime thing, and I was already training. 15 September and they were still fishing, you know, and so those guys were long gone. Yeah. You know, they're not even at track meets now. And so here we are throwing national records. And so, you know, I think they make it hard on you in the beginning because they want to see what you're made of. But when you get to the next level, I think it's time to, to get past that and start loosening up the purse strings or, or at least pointing you in the right direction because now it's becoming really hard on my family. And now I need, you know, I have a chance to help, you know, wearing, wearing the red, white, and blue for the country, and and I need a little bit of help. That's all. Yeah. I'm not asking for the world. I just need, I just need a little bit of help with some airfare. That's all I'm asking for. Yeah. No, I, I and I get it. It's just you don't come across anything but that, and others I've spoken to are the same way. And it's <laughs> we already have so many challenges, and then we got to go raise the money and actually be competitive, and it's. You don't think of sports that way, although I know there's a lot of people out there that say, hey, I had to do the same thing for my softball team when I, when I finished playing. I had some, some people on there that, of course, you know, if you want something, you got to go after and get it. If there's no TV rights and all that other stuff, so going to pay for it all. Well, that, well, you got to be a realist. But at the same time, um, I guess it's awareness. I don't know. It just, it, I, I, again, I haven't heard too much before speaking with some Paralympic athletes. So. You know, it's my, I guess it's my own fault for not looking. But I will tell you this. When I turn on that TV and I watch in 2016 and I see some of the events uh, leading up to that, I have a lot more respect, <laughs> a lot more respect because it's not just the, the, the physical challenges. We obviously, we've heard from you, there's a, 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 like any athlete, there's the mental challenges, but then there's the monetary challenges <laughs> on top of that. Well, I'll be waving to you, Rob. Yeah, well, we'll be waving right back. I'll tell you. I'll tell you, I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, a couple last questions here. You have shared so much with us here, Damien. I mean, like you said, it, we could go on for hours and hours, but there is from, from your high school coach, 
to to now your you know your your Hungarian American coach. <laughs> I love him. Well, one of my questions actually is is as I was thinking as you were talking there. I mean, I, you mentioned he'd be a good coach, but have you ever thought of coaching? Yes, you know, um, I enjoy it a lot. I have uh, thought of of coaching. Um, I don't think there are too many people that um, have as much time in that chair as I do, and uh, that that you saw the picture that I sent you, uh, that, that chair is, and I, you know what the funny is, is, uh, I didn't want to get in that chair. Uh, they had to talk me, uh, I, when I first, when I first started throwing with the air, air force, um, I used to just stand there with my cane and then just throw the discus and I was still the second farthest thrower on the team. <laughs> And uh, the coach came by and he said, listen, uh, because of your injuries or whatever, you qualify for being in the chair. And I said, I'm not getting in that freaking chair. And because I saw it as guys that were more disabled than I was, and it was a mental thing, you know. And uh, uh, he argued with me and we fought about it for quite a while. And he said, listen, the team needs you to do this because we get participation points for every event. And this is we don't have anybody else qualified to do this. We need you to do this. And a good chief will do that for the team. And I thought, you need to play chief card. I can't believe the chief card. And, uh, and so I got in the chair, uh, much my reluctance. He said, oh, by the way, you're throwing shot put too. And I said, I don't even throw the shot put. And he said, yeah, but you're doing it because we need participation points. So I started throwing a shot put. And now here I am. I, I love that chair. I can't throw the discus. And I hold the national record in shot put. So, you know. Um, and nobody knows that chair better than me. And I love, uh, passing on stuff and, uh, who knows what the future holds, but yeah, I, I could see, um, I could see down the road, uh, passing on what I have learned, uh, especially to younger, uh, you know, uh, challenged athletes, um, who want to become throwers. I would, I would enjoy that a lot. Yeah. You'd be a great coach. Uh, you already are a great coach. And then you would continue to be when you were in front of some some new some new folks who want to learn because uh, you sure have been flexible. I'll tell you that. I mean, bouncing around not only in the Paralympics, but you got to go learn new sports. Pretty soon yeah. they're gonna be like, "Hey, ice hockey! It's ice hockey now!" Hey, <laughs> hey! You never know. Rob. Never know. You never, you never know. know. Got to be ready. As uh, you know, as an athlete, you got to be ready for all opportunities to present themselves. That's right. Well, you'll do just fine. You'll do just fine. How about a uh, favorite sports movie? Ah, favorite sports movie. My favorite sports movie is, um, okay, you're challenging me because of my brain, but it's got Kevin Costner and um, he, he, it flashes back his entire life Mm -hmm. as he's standing on the mound throwing the perfect game. For love of the game. For the love of the game. Great movie. Underrated movie, by the way. That's that's my that's my favorite, and it and it shows an older guy who's at the end of his, who's who everybody else thinks is at the end of his days, who he knows he's not at the end of his days, but um, life, you know, they're pushing him, and I felt that way when that guy said to me, "Too bad, you know, because Paralympics is a young man's game, and here I am now, a you know national record holder in Paralympics." I thought, you know, that that you don't know what you're talking about. People don't know. You can't judge a book by its cover. I, I love that whole story and how much love is involved in that. And 
the the true uh, secret behind everything that is Damien Orsling is my beautiful bride, you know, Lori, and uh, she is my rock, and and she takes great care of me, and is my is my number one supporter and cheerleader, and and uh, uh, sock putter on her, and everything else that needs to be done to get me out the door, and and uh, if it wasn't for for all that, and and that's what you know we learn in that movie is that is that just because you think I'm done, I'm not done. And he learned that love was what really was important in all of that because he reached the climax of his life, but it meant nothing because the person he wanted to share it with wasn't there to share it with him. And, and so the lesson that we learn in life, like I told you earlier, Rob, was that what's really important is who we love and who loves us because the rest of us just details, you know? Yeah. And, and so that's why I enjoy that movie. Well, I'll tell you, we, we would have heard a lot more about that movie had you been given the, uh, the summary because that was a wonderful job you just did there. I tell you, that movie was just not around that, that much. I didn't hear a lot about it, and, but I absolutely love that movie. I've watched it a few times. And I'm so glad you brought it up. Yeah, that was a great. Sorry, two thumbs up, right, Damien? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, book. Do you have? You mentioned a book uh, in passing there, but uh, you didn't. You didn't mention uh, an exact one. How, do you have a book that that you, you uh, go to? Sort of. You, it doesn't have to be anything sports related, but something well, you really recommend. Uh, From Good to Great by Jim Collins. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, if if you know every, I just got done reading uh, uh, the Champion Within by Bruce Jenner, and uh, again, I just love that book. And, um, but, uh, and I'm a huge, uh, fiction reader. I, I read vivaciously. I just read nonstop. Um, I just can't retain as much of it as I used to. I have to go back and reread stuff. I just finished Brett Thor's new one. So I'm a huge fiction reader, but, um, Jim Collins, uh, from good to great, uh, which I read early in my career. And then I reread again recently, um, because the lessons in that teach us that, um, mediocrity comes in many forms and accepting good is not good enough. You know, there's a, there's a common theme between the good man and there's a common theme between the great man and you have to recognize what's holding you back and you, it's 99% of the time it's yourself and you have to self-talk. You can self-talk your way out of that and work your way out and you just have to recognize the steps and that book is a great book to teach you those steps out of there. There you go. Well, one of my last questions here, because you've mentioned baseball so much, I gotta ask you this. I'm putting you in a major league baseball uniform, and you are definitely gonna be taking uh, a good old Louisville slugger and walking up to that plate. As you know, we have walk-up songs at the stadium. What's the walk-up song playing for you as you get into the right mindset to take on that Ooh. pitcher? You're a competitive guy. Uh, yeah, you know, um, my walk-up song is uh, for everything. Um, is my throw song. It's my uh, was the song I played in my headphones when I was high school, getting ready to go out of the game. Is a hair of the dog by Nazareth. Nice. Now you're messing with a son of a bitch. <laughs> I love it. Yep. Hair of the dog. There you go. Well, yep. not, not too much more to ask after you get that one out of somebody. There you go. There you go. Well. How can we? Uh, how can we help? Not not just you, of course, but but everybody who's out there working hard, competing, trying to take that step to uh, just just uh, as you said, find that second family and really push through the the realities that life throws you. These curveballs that you know. And I know you accept them and you move on, but uh, having spoken to you today, we know it's not easy. And I'm just curious, listeners, how they can help support I, th I figure you got enough hats <laughs> i have enough hats. Yeah, you're good on the hats you're good on the clothing so how do we help damien 
Well, the first thing, uh, Rob, is that is that I would ask that everybody, you know, recognize that traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress syndrome are are you know aren't signs that people wear or on on and aren't visible, you know, but they are huge injuries that our warriors are coming back from, and that they are very serious injuries, and that I would ask that everybody who's listening to this, you know, take that into consideration when dealing with. They're just a serious guy who who lost a limb or is injured in any other way. And so take that into consideration when dealing with our our wounded warriors, that there are somebody who's standing in line who went to off the war for the country, who's probably suffering from, you know, just like anybody else and, 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 and needs just as much help. And so just reach out to those organizations that are that are trying to help. You know, and, and reach out to those you know brain injured um, veterans and those PTSD suffering veterans because we we need help too. You know, and and there are a bunch of Paralympic athletes that are struggling financially, and they, who have a great future out there, who have an opportunity to who are striving and struggling and are hungry to to serve their country still, and who want to stand on that podium, who want or are willing to do whatever it takes. Getting up in the morning, you know, diet, what it's training, whatever it takes to 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 get to the next step, which is Rio in 2016, and aren't going to make it because they just can't put the money together to get the job done, and that's a shame. So, any chance that there's a a sponsoring someone out there who can sponsor a Paralympic athlete, then please do because we need your help. Yeah, can't say much more than that, Damien. Thank you so much for coming on. We are going to keep up to speed with you, my friend. Great things ahead. Thanks, Rob. I know it. I can feel I have it. enjoyed talking with you. I'll what a you. great day. Well, we've had a great time. The the I mean, bowl in the ring. I'm going to go to sleep. Bowl in the ring. Bowl in the ring. Bowl Let's the go. Ring. Let's do it. <laughs> it's great. Really, really uh, excellent time, Damien. I wish you all the best in your travels here. I know you're heading down to D.C. And then uh, just keep up the good work. Say hello to my friend, uh, Coach Gaber, Gaber, Gabor. He'll probably throw me if he sees me. (laughs) Gabor Mate. There we go, Gabor. I might be reaching out to Gabor. He sounds like a wonderful person. So, uh, Damien, all the best to you. Thanks for being uh, such a wonderful featured guest here on Who Are You? Thanks, Rob. Until next time, Who Are You Nation? 